that is one way that they always serve as valuable characters. Fenris are characters that you will never be accused of assassinating. You cannot... (laughs) Yeah. You cannot make Fenris do anything that would be too much out of character. Oh my God, you ruined Fenris. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning fan favorite guest, Spencer Ackerman, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, writer of Forever Wars, a newsletter that you can read. I was going to say on Substack, but I don't believe that's true anymore. It is no longer true. It's a newsletter you can read on Ghost, another newsletter platform. Yeah, well, there you go. I just, you know, click the link. Spencer is also with fellow friend of the pod, Evan Narcisse, one of the two co-writers on the upcoming DC miniseries for Black Label, Waller vs. Wildstorm. That's very exciting, Spencer. When does that come out? That comes out on November 15th. Yeah, it's soon. Please, 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 if you're listening to this and you've enjoyed the previous episodes of Cerebro that I've been on and also the Dazzler episode with Evan Narcisse, please, please, please pre-order it at your comic shop. Yeah, the best way you can help any title, even something that's advertised as a miniseries, you're helping the writers, you're helping the artists, you're helping convey that there is interest in the characters that they're using, Generally speaking, the number one way to express your support for any comic book is to pre-order a physical single-issue copy from your local comic shop. I know that's annoying, but unfortunately, that is the way that it is. Spencer, how are you today on this rainy evening here in New York in the year 5783? I'm doing great. I hope you're doing great as well, Connor. Thank you so much for having me back. We're going to have a great time laughing at Nazis. (laughs) It could not be a Cerebro episode about Fenris without it being Cerebro episode 88. Yeah, so before any conspiracy theorists start going spencer texted me like a month ago wouldn't it be so funny if the fenris episode was episode 88 because if you are not familiar and god bless you if you're not 88 is slang used by neo-nazis because h is the eighth letter of the alphabet so 88 meaning hh meaning heil hitler or Hail Hydra in the case of the Fenris twins. I was like, oh my God, that would be so rude, Spencer. And then I looked at the schedule and I realized that by complete coincidence, this episode was already scheduled as episode 88, which feels right. There's something cosmic about that because I've been teasing you with the fact that we're going to do this episode for like a year now. And you've been texting me panels from, I mean, I believe we've now read every appearance of Fenris. It is an amazing way to close out the days of awe. Yes. Spencer Spencer made me promise that we could record this before Kol Nidre because he was like, I don't want this many jokes about 
incest Nazis to be on my ledger for the coming year. I initially promised I would get it out before Yom Kippur, but that's simply not going to happen because Yom Kippur is in two days, which frankly, rude for Yom Kippur to be the day before New York Comic Con. I think that is... I'm like, it's not enough to be stressed about preparing for New York Comic Con. You're going to be hungry, but it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Luckily, the points are made up and none of it matters or whatever they used to say on whose line is it anyway. So it's between you and your God. But Bezrat Hashem, we will have a really funny <laughs> episode here. For people who are not familiar with Fenris, you may have most recently seen them in the Krakoan era in Jerry Duggan's Marauders and then in Teeny Howard's X-Corp. They are a pair of twins, fraternal twins. The boy is named Andreas and the girl is named Andrea. They are the children of Baron von Strucker, the longtime nemesis, of, well, one of them anyway, of Captain America. Wolfgang von Strucker was, in the world of Marvel, one of Hitler's core advisors alongside Heinrich Zemo and the Red Skull and all of those other Hydra villains. Fenris are an interesting case because they are not a relic of the time when every superhero comic was about fighting Nazis. And they are not even a relic of Captain America versus Hydra stories, the way that Viper, for example, is still around and it's sort of like, oh, she's a Nazi. But I knew her from Wolverine stories before I ever knew her as a Nazi. So it was like weird when I realized that she was Madame Hydra. This one is a little different. This is a Chris Claremont joint. So the Fenris twins emerge really fully formed as camp highly stylized, aestheticized Nazi exploitation villains in a way that I think is really, really funny. And I understand why some people simply never want to see these characters in a comic book ever again, because they are singularly unpleasant in a way that a lot of supervillains are not. And what they represent is obviously very real. However, I would posit that the funniest possible concept for a supervillain team is fraternal twin Nazis who fuck each other. Yeah, this is really, I feel like we've buried the lead here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these, so the, these, guys, these guys are real gross. Like The Fenris twins <laughs> are fucking. So we mentioned that this is episode 88 We've mentioned why 88 is a number with some lore <laughs> God. in the Nazi sphere. Yes. And in our debased times, that gets paired with a number, another number that listeners may be aware of, which is 14. Right, yes. 1488, you may know. That's a slogan that a lot of alt-right neo-Nazi types have used on social media and whatnot. It's a really stupid totem that just sort of signals to the believers that you're in the presence of one of them. You have entered a Nazi zone. Right, yes. <laughs> in particular, the 14 refers to a really stupid code. It's called the 14 words. The 14 words. It means something on the order of, like, we have to preserve a future for white children. For white children, white specifically. Children. 
it's about the idea of white genocide and the Great Replacement, which is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that posits Jews are conspiring to promote interracial marriage and immigration so that the true white race will be exterminated by generational turnover. It's playing the same old Nazi hits, Jews control an army of subhuman races. Right, that like people of color are our unwitting servants in a quest to destroy the white race is basically the idea. It refers back to a tenet of what Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, in a classic 1995 essay called Ur-Fascism, which is attempting to sort of put together the individually necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for fascism, this necessary contradiction within the mind of the fascist that their enemies are simultaneously overmighty, dictating the events of the world, but also weak and degraded and debased and capable of being defeated through violence. But I don't bring up those 14 words to really delve into them. I pick them up because I counted a different 14 words for something that could work as a slogan for Fenris, which is, I am going to suck each and every toe on my twin sister's foot. <laughs> that works out to 14 words. That, it that's sure does, 14, yeah. That's your, that's your 14 word. Slogan for Fenris. These guys are really gross. They fuck each other constantly. There was a point at which I came upon a panel of... Andreas being handed a hairbrush by his sister Andrea, who's topless with her back to the reader, telling Andreas, um, you know, will you brush my hair? It always helps me sleep. And I was about to text it to Connor (laughs) when I realized it would not have been 7 a.m. where you were. Right, I was in LA. I just flew out here for New York Comic Con. That... Andrea, actually, I know that you didn't delve as deeply into the Thunderbolts material. That one is actually a clone because Andrea's been killed. Andreas is so bereft without her after he's oh. been crazy by the Purple Man. The Purple Man being one of the only characters in all of Marvel Comics grosser than the Fenris twins. <laughs> do, you, do you want to tell them what he does with the skin of his sister? We'll get there, I think, when we okay. get there. But so after Andrea's dead and and Andreas has uh, done some things in reaction to that, eventually he commissions Arnim Zola, the Hydra scientist, to clone her. So he's in bed with the clone and the hairbrush. And he's like, this isn't actually like fixing my problems. But I was not inclined to read on. <laughs> Um, she dies two issues later. Like that character, the clone does not last long. But what I love is that then Andreas also dies. And eventually there's just this story in the Illuminati book in all new, all different Marvel now or whichever relaunch it was where the villains go to Club Fenris, which is like a nightclub in New York City that Fenris run for supervillains. Someone, one of the main it's like The Hood and Enchantress, yep. but not the Asgardian one. It's the one from The Young Masters pretending that she's the Asgardian one. And Titania and a couple other characters. Thunderball from The Wrecking Crew, who also factors memorably into Tanahasi Coates' story with Fenris. Gets the best line of that entire issue. <laughs> 
there's a great moment where someone, I forget who, is like, I thought you two had gone to the great big hell in the sky or whatever. <laughs> and Andreas is like, father took care of that. Like, they're just back. This is long before Krakoa. They were just back and it was fine. The thing about Fenris is I don't love Baron Zemo. I'll just put that right out there. I particularly don't love the MCU Daniel Brühl version of Baron Zemo who's not a Nazi and hates Nazis. I find that strange. I think that a lot of the revisionism to Hydra over the years to decouple Marvel's most prominent villainous organization from it being the Fourth Reich is... Not great, and I'm glad that they've kind of backed off of that for the most part in very recent years. Fenris have a purity to them, no pun intended. They obviously are very concerned with purity and their notions of it. But there's a purity of concept here, which is that Fenris are hilarious and gross, and that's just what they're here to be, and they're fucking Nazis. Like, there's no bones about it. Every time they show up, they are doing something evil, racist, and probably with incestuous subtext or text. So, you know, <laughs> they're just here for a slap at, and in that way, I think that they are kind of radical as characters, but you're raising your hands, so I want to let you go first. Yeah, just to point out that very realized, terrible people, fictionally, they're also awful supervillains. They're bad at supervillaining. So bad at it. Nearly every single issue you will find involving Fenris involves them losing in that issue, often within pages if not a single page of their introduction sometimes to children like they are team rocket essentially blasting off again every time they appear they never win they're like wily e. coyote after the roadrunner has hysterically <laughs> blown up the dynamite and they're there with like these sooty faces yes they're so bad at what they do they learn nothing they're not interested in learning anything to your point about purity I, and I think this actually says something that Umberto Eco captured really well in that essay concerning fascism. As Umberto Eco once said about Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, I'm going to suck each and every toe on my twin sister's foot, said Umberto Eco about Fenris. Let's not do that. <laughs> it's introducing Nazi mutants concerned with purity mm -hmm. is a tangle on its own terms of contradictions. But I want to just wave them all away right now because real-life Nazis are a tangle of contradictions. Yes. Never do they feel troubled by it. Never do they feel like they can't either ignore it or mumble through it because ultimately the reality of the world is not written in words to a fascist. It's written in violence. It's written in physical domination. And so whatever meandering, contradictory, nonsensical paths it takes to get to power, you know, as I, I suppose an evil Connor from that Excalibur dimension where Excalibur or Nazis, Nazis would say, don't worry about it. Right. Nazi ideology becomes very obviously 
porous, let's say, like you pour water into that and it's all just going to pour out like a sieve. There's no need for an internal logic besides we are right and you are wrong and we are better than you. The mutant thing is particularly interesting with Fenris because in their backstory, we're told that their father had Arnim Zola genetically engineer them to have X genes in utero. That's very strange when you think about it, because the Red Skull, for instance, sees mutants as subhuman in the same way he sees Jews, Romani people, Black people, etc. as subhuman. He sees mutants as another aberration that is corrupting the purity of the white race or whatever. Strucker was like, but if my children are mutants, they'll have superpowers. So to him, it was a means to an end. And it doesn't seem to hurt their standing within Hydra because they have Strucker's name and they have money. Lots of money. Lots of money. We should point this out also. Typically, Fenris are not goons. Fenris hire goons. Right. And whenever they appear as goons, like there's a cloak and dagger story that's really funny, or when they were working for Ezekiel Stain in Tanahasi Coates' Black Panther, they're really bad at it. Like really, really bad at it. To the point where it only really happens when they don't have a plan of their own. Most of the time, they are hiring goons, often away from Hydra. They have their own organization called Fenris because their half-brother, Werner, is at odds with them about who's in control of Hydra. And then also their father is constantly being resurrected from the dead and assuming command of Hydra again. That's like his favorite thing to do. And when he's not, it's usually the Red Skull or Viper or another more recognizable and competently evil character. The Fenris twins are comically bad at everything that they do besides fucking each other and being hateful racists. So <laughs> who knows if they're even good at fucking one another? I think they are, and I, I'm sorry that I've thought about this, but I, <laughs> I think they are. Go on. I well, I he, based on the way they interact with each other, I think they have a very fulfilling sex life. It just happens to be with their sibling. No, now 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 that you bring it up, I do have to. There is some panel somewhere where Andrea, like every now and then, says to someone or other. This happens more than once. Every now and then, Andrea will say something like, they could never understand our bond. They could never understand what our relationship is. They could never understand blah, blah, blah. It's worth noting, the Fenner's Twins debut in 1985, 11 years before the publication of George R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones. George R. R. Martin, noted Marvel Comics fan, I'm not saying <laughs> there's a direct line, but I wouldn't be surprised if young George had read a Fenris comic and it had been rattling around in his brain when he was creating Jamie and Cersei Lannister because it's the same vibe, right? It's like, this is an old, old mytheme. It's also something that happens in reality. You look at the Ptolemies. Cleopatra was the product of generations of incest. Colonizers and racists 
nobility, aristocracy, who believe in their own superiority to such an extent that eventually they decide no one is pure enough to mate with besides their own family. This is something that recurs in a lot of gothic fiction. It is a strong Victorian trope in like British literature. The very last scene of Werner Herzog's classic Aguirre, Wrath of God, um, mm -hmm. when we see Aguirre fully formed as an almost mythical monster representing the conquest and colonization of Mesoamerica, says that now that his killing for the moment is abated, he plans to marry his daughter. Right. It's a theme that Martin uses to evoke the sort of Greco-Roman horror tragedy of that. It's also a biblical theme. Like, there's a reason why every ancient culture has a taboo about incest. And one of those reasons is that... You'll end up with the Strucker twins. Well, yeah, I mean, at the very least, you'll <laughs> end up with children who are not all with it. I mean, you look at the Habsburgs at a certain point, and they were really going through it because their family tree was more like a poinsettia. These characters come out of that tradition of the Gothic incestuous twins in particular, which is a long-standing trope. Claremont combines it with a very interesting phenomenon. Interesting, I was going to say problematic, but I feel like that word has become... We are beyond problem and problematic. When I was in college, the word problematic meant that's kind of interesting and fucked up. Let's unpack it. And now it just means bad. So what I mean to say is... There were a number of movies coming out of Europe in the 70s, what came to be known as Nazi exploitation. But it started with a number of more well respected art films Pasolini's Salo, Cavani's The Night Porter, Tinto Brass's Salon Kitty. These are all movies that, while they were controversial, for their themes, which involved typically sadomasochistic sex with Nazis, they were also primal screams out from a continent that had been ravaged by fascism and was trying to reassemble all of that. Those movies are like 74, 75, 76-ish. Salo is in turn based on the 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, who was also a controversial writer interested in exploring the worst person you could imagine, basically. Like, what is the most horrible thing we can come up with in this scenario? And that's what that book specifically is about. So the decision to move it to Nazi-occupied Europe makes a lot of sense. Those were the art films that were happening that there was a lot of conversation about. The Night Porter launched the career of Charlotte Rampling. It's considered a cult classic. I think it's quite good, honestly. But I also get why a lot of people think it's repugnant and should never be shown anywhere. So there's a lot of borderline cases like that. Then there are the cases that are in no way borderline at all, that were happening around the same time. The most famous is Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, which is released in 1975. It's actually Canadian. It's not European. So I don't know what Canadian angst they were working through. But 
Ilsa is the commandant of a Nazi prison camp. She is a sexy lady in very Tom of Finland-esque fascist regalia. And she sexually abuses men and women. At the end, she is killed. And so it's fine because the bad guy died. Then there were three sequels in which she was not a Nazi, but was involved in other things. So like... She-Wolf of the CIA. You'd think that that would have gone... <laughs> maybe nowadays they would have gone there, but there was... The first one was called um, Ilsa Harem Keeper of the Oil Shakes. Oh my God. Where she's been hired to oversee a harem and to acclimate European girls <laughs> to white slavery. There's one called uh, Ilsa the Wicked Warden, which is not a real Ilsa movie. It's just it starred the same actress, so they marketed it as one. And then Ilsa the Tigress of Siberia, in which she is the commandant of a Siberian gulag mm. in 77, because we've now moved on to Cold War exploitation. They all starred the same actress, and the character was always called Ilsa, presumably after Ilsa Koch, the Witch of Buchenwald who was a real person that you can look up. This is not a historical Nazis podcast, but she was pretty bad. She was not, however, a porn star. There's a very, like, there's a very bizarre, taboo, prurient thing here. Ilsa Shewolf of the SS was enormously controversial. Gene Siskel called it the most degenerate picture he had ever seen downtown. People called for it to be banned. And that, of course, led to it being an enormous, enormous financial success. Everybody who was into trashy cinema or weird B-movies or whatever had seen this movie by 1985 when Chris Claremont creates Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS as an X-Men character and then says, what if, because I'm Chris Claremont, <laughs> there was a boy who she ordered around all the time who was like her doting slave. So and so she has <laughs> a male twin who shares her name. They're Andrea and Andreas. They are essentially two halves of one character, which is also what Cersei always says to Jamie in the Song of Ice and Fire. Right. Is like we are, you know, right. It's the Ilsa motif, but it's not like other Claremont villainesses. With these characters, he didn't want to do sexy implication. He externalizes Andrea's sexual threat into a male doublet, I think, is sort of how I read it. Now, if we asked him, what were you thinking about this? He was probably just like, I don't know, I saw a movie because he saw, you know, lots of movies yeah. and was inspired by also, he doesn't bring them back a lot, unlike the characters he cares about. Correct. The Fenris twins have endured mostly in that other writers have found them to be fun characters to use. Andreas has 99 appearances to Andreas 47. That is in large part because for a period in the mid-aughts, Andreas was the second swordsman, a member of the Thunderbolts, and had a lengthy arc after the death of Andrea about realizing that their father had brainwashed and indoctrinated them, trying to be a better person, and ultimately not really succeeding. It's an interesting arc. It's a bizarre thing to do with this character. 
to the point where when they brought Fenris back again, nobody really acknowledges that stuff because it was sort of an experiment that was happening off to the side. It's a Fabian Nicias' story, and I always think those are worth taking a look at. Fabian's Thunderbolt stuff is really wild. After he leaves the book, it gets less compelling to me. He writes something that I had never heard of called Citizen V and the V Commandos, or maybe it's Citizen V Battalion. Maybe it's Citizen Five. It's it's both, I think. Okay, well, I had never heard for a while. Hiberto de Korshta was Citizen X as an homage to the heroic Citizen V, not to Baron Zemo. This is a part of the Marvel universe that I was not familiar with, and you know don't care about, won't revisit. But in the course of learning that there were Fenris appearances in this gearing up for the episode, I read them and they're great. Yeah. You know, now that you mention it, Fabian might have invented Fenris more than Chris Claremont. I disagree. Okay. Well, he uses, I guess, I guess I, I, he's written them more. He writes them a lot. He's, he seems to be more interested in writing them than Chris is that he sees a kernel of something there. Or he sees them as useful for stuff like the young hunt. Yeah, I agree. I think the distinction is just that unlike a character like Storm, for example, who Len Wein creates, but Chris Claremont really creates, I think that here the core premise is established by Claremont is so strong that most people are just following that you're right it's never until they do the thing with right fabian is doing something else but he's kind of turning him into a new character which is what thunderbolts was in general really it was saying what if one of these villains got to be the hero of a book what would they say what would they think that was sort of the core conceit of thunderbolts was like it's baron zemo and screaming mimi and moonstone and all of these other nasty characters justifying themselves, deciding they're going to be heroes. It all spins out of Onslaught and the heroes reborn. Don't worry about it. This is not a Thunderbolts podcast, and that's not the last time you're going to hear that in this episode, I imagine. But yeah, so basically what the Fenris twins represent, I think, in Chris Claremont's fetish fantasia that is the 80s run is the sexual power of fascism i mean tom of finland i mentioned earlier tom of finland grew up under nazi occupation of finland and he was very imprinted on those uniforms in his later life he asked that his drawings with literal nazi uniforms not be shown out of respect Mm. he was like you know i don't support nazism but just like his drawings of cops or sailors, it was because these uniformed authority figures were such a fixation for him. This is a problem because there is, among the other points that you will read scholars of fascism discuss, Michael Burley, who I was privileged enough to take a class with when I was a Rutgers University undergraduate, and others make is that this isn't always the case for every fascist movement, but... The Nazis focused a tremendous amount on aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, you hire Hugo Boss to design your uniform, it's going to be a good uniform. You hire Mercedes to make your cars, they're going to be pretty cars. You hire Coco Chanel to be an SS operative undercover for you for the entire war, then, you know, probably get some fashion tips from her, too. There's a commitment to aesthetic because when you're expressing the idea that you are superior, 
there has to be an idea also that you are superior in beauty, in form. I think there's an important point to make there for I know, for but I want to I, I know, but I need to go back around to Chris Claremont because what okay, I was go saying, ahead. I don't want to Sorry, 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 sorry. Go we're ahead. going off and I feel like people are gonna take away a point that's not the one I was making. Okay, go ahead. I really don't want it to sound like I'm saying they're Chris Claremont's ode to the sexual allure of fascism, because that's not what I'm saying. I think he is taking that surfacey, outre, renegade vibe of this sort of trash cinema of pinup art, pulpy, fucked up stuff that traffics in sexy Nazi imagery. And then he's twisting it to be like, but these two suck. You don't want to <laughs> be these people, you know? To me, what's compelling about it is it's like the first Nazi exploitation I'm aware of chronologically that's written by a Jewish writer. Very the producers to me, like... But it's not slapstick. I see what no, you mean, but it's... But they are a burlesque yeah. of Nazi chic. Yeah, they yeah, are yeah. not actually Nazi chic because Nazis are not chic. Real Nazis have no chin and bust in 15 seconds. Right. These are laughable people. Right. And again, the idea that they just fuck each other because only each other are perfect enough is so funny because it's like, sure, okay. To them, yeah. it's the height of pure behavior. To anyone with a brain, it's like, actually, that's really impure and I feel sick. <laughs> and it brings a, you brought a run back to the point I wanted to make, which is that for the surface level of the, the fashion element is the gateway. For the unsuspecting, one of the ways that Echo makes about this essay is that fascism broadly and Nazism specifically is appealing to this, the audience he's writing for is at this point European, so he assumes white. Right. Middle class under pressure, given to a form of apocalyptic threat, stoked by the Nazis. And the entrance point, and I think we, we can attest to this now in an era where Google and Twitter's algorithms have enabled and rewarded a kind of fascist recruitment content that feeds very well through these algorithms, whereby the aesthetics sort of outpaces the actual disgusting politics. And you, you get brought into it by the allure, many of those who are susceptible to it by degree, as opposed to coming out forthrightly and being like, we are about the genocide of non-white mm -hmm. peoples and the domination of our enemies, the destruction of sexual and gender deviance as we define it and so on, is that it's aesthetics first. It's an appeal to your frustration, white middle-class person who can't seem to come up with an acceptable explanation for the chaos of the world and why forces beyond your control determine so much of your life that never has to receive a materialist analysis. Fundamentally, Nazis are dogs. Nazis are the attack dogs of capitalism. Nazis, fascists broadly, however much they posit, particularly in our day and age, that they are a right-wing alternative to and separation from capitalism. Populist movement. Ultimately, the point of it all is to smash the working class, 
to prevent the unity of the working class and preserve the capitalist order, which they find a way of reconciling, back to Echo's point about the contradictions inherent in fascism, with a traditionalist order. And that the militancy of the posture, the willingness, the eagerness, the delectation taken in crushing one's enemies, first rhetorically, but, you know, haha, JK, uh, on right. lines, you know, of it all, is what can turn a Quentin choir into an Andreas Strucker. That is a great point. I'm just going to point out that you said it, not me, but I thought it. <laughs> what I want to convey after all of that sort of historical context and sociocultural context for these characters is Claremont presents the scions of Hydra, the next generation of elite Nazism, to be stupid very stupid. Useless, self-absorbed to the point of literal incest with a twin, which is like a narcissistic fantasy, right? The first narcissistic fantasy, right? Literally, Narcissus was yeah. looking for that. Look it up. Greek mythology. This is a Greek mythology podcast. This is a Greek mythology podcast, and there's a twist ending if you're not familiar. So, you know, <laughs> look it up. But anyway, in their very first appearance... Andreas tries to rape a woman and Storm knocks him on his fucking ass. Yeah, disgusting from jump. Let's start from the beginning. This is Uncanny X-Men 194. The depowering arc is underway. Storm has been shot by the gun devised by Forge that was used by Valerie Cooper and Henry Peter Gyrick to target Rogue. But now Storm has no powers instead of Rogue. Storm who was leading the X-Men, is really bereft without her powers and decides to go home to East Africa to see if maybe she can recenter herself somehow, as she's been told that barring some miracle, her powers will never return. She is walking in Kenya when she comes upon a group of white people on safari led by Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, although they're not identified by name at that point, just by first name. Storm interferes when Andreas tries to assault the African woman who runs the convenience store where they've stopped, basically. Storm knocks him on his ass. That makes everybody hop too. But Andrea is like, oh no, my brother will take care of himself. You don't have to interfere. This may prove amusing. Then Storm elbows him in the face. Andrea pulls a handgun. She cocks it, but doesn't have time to fire because Storm has thrown a knife, which knocks the gun right out of Andrea's hand and sticks in the wall behind her. It sort of like pins her hair to the wall, which is fun. And Storm says, I could have killed you just now, woman, and your brother, but I refuse to soil my homecoming with your blood. I suggest, however, she says, picking up a shotgun, that you not press your luck. You still have light enough to drive. Move on to another campground far from here. This one is closed. They rush off or whatever. And then the woman who he had attacked comes out and Storm's like, it's okay, everything's going to be fine, but they might come back, so you should get ready or maybe get out of here, or I don't know. 
the woman falls to her knees and says, have our prayers at last been answered? You are the wind rider, the goddess Aurora. You have returned. And Storm is left devastated because she isn't the goddess that this woman was praying for, except maybe she was. She saved this. Like, this is leading into life death. Yes. Life death too. Life death too, right. Really... The ultimate storm story. I mean, we're now seeing what I feel like may be the ultimate storm story. I'm so excited for Al Ewing to take us wherever we're going next. But in terms of the Claremont run, the arc of her being depowered, retaining her leadership of the X-Men, and then pushing all the way through until by sheer willpower she recovers her power in Fall of the Mutants, that's really her most deep and beautiful and engaging storyline. So this is what kind of sets her on the path to realizing maybe I do matter even if I'm not a goddess, even if I don't have this vast power, I matter because of what I can do. Fenris are the characters immediately set in opposition to that. They are disgusting. They are a rapist and his sister who finds that amusing. It's mentioned in this story that She's a widow, Andrea? Yes. She has a husband named Jan, who as far as I know, we Has never been seen. We know nothing about. Andreas kind of makes a joke about how sad Andrea is. She talks about Jan sometimes. My sister's a widow, too, to the woman he's about to attack. But, you know... Just a note. Kill your spouse so that then you and your incestuous sibling can be together forever is an established part of this trope. Spoilers. The movie Crimson Peak hinges on this this idea. There's also Cersei and Jaime Lannister where she kills the king so that she and Jaime can rule without him. Yeah, so presumably Andreas killed Jan. Jan was probably a piece of shit anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, he was presumably like handpicked by their Nazi dad, so I can't imagine he was a real prize either, but he was probably like a noodly Nazi guy who had money and then they killed him and now they're off having their... There was a Reddit AMA that was like this once. Dear God! This is truly iconic. My friend Kyrell and I were obsessed with it. It was about this woman who's fiance had this eerily close relationship with his sister it was definitely fake like it was definitely someone practicing a fiction prompt but like as it went on we were like they are going to kill you (laughs) they are fucking and they are going to kill you and this is very much that not an ama it was an am i the asshole you know what i mean yeah like our relationships whatever anyway the introductory issues of fenris in the claremont run is probably like the most menacing that they are. We don't yet know that they're incompetent buffoons. Right. Who constantly get defeated. Here we see, like, they go to Kenya to kill wildlife. And they define animals pretty fucking broadly. Correct. So the implication to me has always been that they were also perhaps looking to hunt the most dangerous game, right? That's not said overtly, except that two issues later... Storm. Yeah, Yeah. two issues later, Storm is walking around in the Serengeti and sees a lion with a silver mane, which she interprets as like a good omen because they have the same hair, right? And so she's like... Maybe I do belong here again. He's looking at her and she says, a lion, he wears a silver mane. His hair matches my own. Is that an omen? He seems friendly. 
blam goddess because someone has shot and killed the lion right in front of her and she shouts no how could you shoot so noble a beast and then blam the same gun shoots her right in the fucking head and we cut to Andrea holding a rifle and she says, I believe, brother, we've seen the last of that interfering, insufferably arrogant. And I'm not going to say the next word because it's we extremely offensive. Well, a lot of people probably don't. It starts with a K. If you are familiar with South Africa, it is known there as the K word. It is essentially analogous to the N word. You know, you know what it means. You know what they're saying. It's what yeah, they yeah. always say. Right. It's the only fucking thing they say. And they call her a K word witch specifically. Um, Interesting, because that also, I hadn't thought of this until just this minute. Do we know where they're actually born? We don't. So do you are think they, they are South African? Are they like, South African? Rhodesian, right? Like, yeah. I, I think yes. We've never really been told, but they use that expression, which is very Afrikaner specifically as opposed to German. And so I think maybe they're like Strucker's kids that he had in the colonies, not in that we're not growing up with or like you know the best place to raise the strucker children i would you know if you are you know baron strucker is if it's not brazil and it's not argentina well right it's certainly going to be apartheid south africa right and that's no disrespect to our brazilian argentinian listeners i know there are lots of you it just also as i'm it just also as i'm sure you all know is a place where a lot of nazi war criminals fled those two countries specifically when I first read this comic, I didn't know what that word meant, to, but I knew that it was the N-word. Like, I knew exactly what she was saying. It's really foul. Andrea says, a magnificent shot, Andrea, but I wish you'd left that pleasure to me. After all, I was the one she struck. Andrea says, the insult was avenged, Andreas. That is what matters. Again, emphasizing from the get-go the idea that what you do to one of them, you do to both of them. They are one person. They are just two bodies that are extensions of one spirit or whatever. And then the guide, who is a guy called Kramer, which I think is interesting, is like, poaching's one thing, but I really didn't think we were going to get into murder. And Andrea says, like, we paid a lot of bribes to be here, so you're welcome to talk to the authorities if you want, but that would be extremely foolish on your part. And then she says the most disgusting thing. She says, we'll take the lion for a trophy. Leave the savage to rot. And so if you didn't get the specific racial slur, you also get the vibe now. Yeah, you get it. If you, you get didn't it, if you weren't familiar with that word, you'd know clearly what's going on here if you didn't in 194. I remember in high school, I guess, I read K-Word Boy by Mark Mathabane, which is a memoir of experiencing apartheid. And I was like, oh, wow. Because suddenly this clicked into place. And they call her that a lot. It's not just restricted to this one issue. It is like a regular thing that they call her. It's also something Ta-Nehisi Coates had them call Luke Cage more right. recently, which I thought was, I mean, again, ta really knows his 80s X-Men, so I was not surprised to see Fenris, like, pulling out the old hits, but I was like, ooh, that's still a rough one. Celine in Captain America. Yes, although I... He's probably going to listen to this because you're friends, so I can't... But, but I am not a thousand percent sure I buy the Celine storyline in Captain America. Okay. 
But I have very specific Selene opinions, and I would hope that Tanahasi could respect that. I think he most certainly would. I just think she would have been bored with that whole thing and wouldn't, like, I, I just can't see her ever, like, working a desk job. That just doesn't seem, like, X-Corp, that was the joke. Like, that was funny about her wanting to join X-Corp because she just wanted to really to go to parties. But anyway, point is, yeah, that was a blast from the past moment there. In any case, they next appear after this because we're still like, who are these people, Right. We haven't seen them use their powers. We don't yet. know that they have we, powers. You and I haven't talked about what their powers are. Right, because they haven't recording. used them yet. Right. right. Yeah. We find out what their powers are because Valerie Cooper assembles the Freedom Force to arrest Magneto. And the trial of Magneto is announced on television. It's going to take place in Paris. It's going to be before an international court. It's basically The Hague, but it's not The Hague. Jim Jaspers will be prosecuting and Gabrielle Haller will be defending. An important point. Very important point. You know, I don't mean to like only have you on to talk about the Shoah, but we would do a banger Gabrielle Haller episode. Yeah, let's do that one. We'll yeah. do that. Yeah. We'll okay. That you one. heard it here first. I got to do Legion first, but then yeah. we should do Gabby. I love Gabby Haller. That's a character. It's really hard to use now because she should be like 150. <laughs> but... <laughs> you, 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 you know, I have, you specifically know. Oh, I sure I do. A, a, a Gabby, Haller a Gabby story. Haller pitch. And yeah, no. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's just, uh... but Marvel, if you're listening, it's good. Anyway. So Magneto is arrested at the Holocaust museum they sure did that. They sure, they sure did that. After, after, after we get on page, on page, survivors coming right. up to Magneto, right. tearfully, joyfully reunited with him as they tell Kitty Pride, who's never seen this before, this side of Magneto before, tell her that he saved them. In Auschwitz. He was with us and he saved our lives. He saved us. And I should have put this in my notes as well, but I believe they knew Kitty's great aunt. Magneto knew Chava Prideman, who died in the Holocaust, but the Pridemans later prides never knew what had happened to her. Magneto had known her in the camp where she had been killed. And the lesson of this, and the lesson of this, is you can be that person and the freedom forces of this country will arrest you at the Holocaust Museum. Something I think is really interesting here is I keep stressing like the blondness and the beauty of Andrea in these sequences. This is a John Romita Jr. period and there is a mirrored effect I think happening with Valerie Cooper that's very mm. interesting. In these same issues, Valerie Cooper makes her offer to Mystique to create Freedom Forest, to pardon the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. We have seen Valerie Cooper become the even more extreme arm of Project Wide Awake, more extreme than Gyrick, although Gyrick is more willing to shoot an unarmed teenage girl, as it turns out. But Val's pretty bad, and Val is specifically under Claremont, a villain representing a very specific kind of bureaucracy. Hire more woman prison guards. Make Gina Haspel a torturer chief of a black site torture prison where Abu Zubaydah was tortured and where Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri was tortured. Make that person the head of the CIA. That is a thing that happened in 2016. 
these are things that happen and it's very specifically aesthetic, right? It's what we were saying before about how certain modes of power acquisition are obsessed with aesthetic. And in the case of Valerie Cooper, Valerie is this perfect all-American blonde who is also a modern woman and a feminist, I'll have you know, and cloaks her really oppressive, scary politics in something that on the surface in the Reagan administration in which she serves appears progressive. Andrea is the truth Mm -hmm. of that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Valerie makes the same grin to Mystique that Andrea does after she shoots Storm. What separates Val Cooper from Andrea von Strucker is what the historian Eric Hobsbawm described as the invisible line of respectability. Yes. Val Cooper is respectable. Fenris is not respectable at all. The respectable try Magneto. Make his crimes and not theirs the issue. But the palpable, throbbing impulse of the moment is bloodlust. And for the release that comes in a sick fascist mind through terrorism, there is Fenris. It's Valerie who sends Freedom Force to apprehend Magneto at the Holocaust Memorial. He is then put on trial and he is defended by Gabrielle Haller, the Holocaust survivor with whom he bonded in Israel when he was working at a survivor's facility in Haifa. That's also where he met Charles. Charles and Gabby fell in love. That's where Legion comes from, although Charles didn't know that. Go back to the Charles Xavier episode for more on this whole storyline. The point is that Gabrielle Haller had a secret code implanted in her in the camps by hypnotic suggestion. Hydra kidnaps Gabby. Baron von Strucker wants to use Gabby to access a cache of treasure and whatnot. Charles and Magnus join forces to rescue her. This is Uncanny X-Men 161. The issue that retcons that Xavier and Magneto are old friends, which is one of the most foundational. Well, right. Spencer just made big air quotes because my read on this situation is that Charles is fucking both of them. It's very cabaret, right? Point is, Baron von Strucker was humiliated by Magneto in that issue, but he was also humiliated in the eyes of Hydra by Ms. Gabrielle Haller, who is now an Israeli ambassador and a pretty important international lawyer. So she takes the case and she successfully defends Magneto on the grounds that, and we've mentioned this in the show before and called it the Gabby Haller defense, if you have been de-aged to a baby and then re-aged, you've basically already already died, so sentencing him to death doesn't really make any sense. In fact, he shouldn't be liable for the crimes that happened before he got de-aged because he's an entirely new person now, which on Krakoa would be an alarming legal precedent to set. So I imagine someone will test that at some point. But her tricky ideas managed to win out. There is then a really critical moment where a woman in the crowd leaps up and screams at her. Yeah. Traitor, Jewess, you've sold out your own kind. You deserve the same fate as him. About her defense of Magneto and her betrayal of humanity. 
the first thing to come out of this woman's mouth who's castigating Gabby for that is Jewess. Because the condition of being Jewish is one of condition, right? It's conditionality. It's the idea that you are part of Germany or whiteness or humanity until we decide that you're not. There is a Jew in Paris who is being called a traitor. Yes. It doesn't get more French anti-Semitism than that. It sure doesn't, right? It's also just so nakedly hypocritical. It's like, you're a traitor to your own kind, Jewess. When it's like, you mean you? You're saying that we're the same kind and I've betrayed you, but you just called me by a demeaning ethnic name? Like, it's the same hypocrisy. The The violence resolves all the contradiction. It's not necessary in the mind of the fascist, in the mind of this person that Claremont has exclaimed here for there to have any value placed on consistency. The domination is the point. Right. The accusation is the point. Exactly. And it betrays the same veneer of respectability that is what I'm talking about in the dyad between Valerie Cooper and Fenris, where this woman would have been able to veil herself as like a concerned citizen who is the aggrieved party, but she couldn't resist the ethnic slur. She tears away mm-hmm. her respectability right. and betrays the herself. Slipped. The mask, the mask slipped. Yeah. Val has the mask up at all times, which is why she becomes a foil for Mystique, whose power is to be mm-hmm. the mask. So there's lots going on here that I think is really fascinating. This is not a Gabrielle Holler episode, so let's save more thoughts on the trial, probably for one of those. But the important thing about where Fenris intersects yes. with the trial of Magneto is that while all of this is happening... Fenris is waging a false flag terrorist operation against the X-Men in which they are ravaging (laughs) Europe and inflaming in a way that I think is a really perfect Hobbes-Balmian moment where like inside the Ile-de-France courtroom is the moment of respectability. But what matters for the world is not the trial of Magneto, but the arousal in Europe aimed against mutant kind of everything Magneto has fought to prevent. The vindication of Magneto is what we're reading, not the trial of Magneto. Precisely. Which is necessary because Claremont is about to put him in charge of the school, right? So we need to get this moment where we realize that everything we had thought about Magneto was wrong and that Magneto actually has something positive to contribute to society and that someone like Valerie, who's invested in maintaining systems of power, will therefore get him thrown into this trumped up nonsense trial. And that during that trial, once the trial starts going well for him, a pair of Nazis will burst through the wall in an attempt to assassinate him, his traitor colleague, Charles Xavier, and the Jewish woman defending him who once embarrassed your Nazi dad. Like, The farcical nature of what's being done to Magneto here is so profound that the center cannot hold and it collapses inwards and literal Nazis pour in. But are the literal Nazis that much different from Valerie sending Freedom Force to arrest him at the Holocaust Memorial? There might be a book written about the war on terror that looks at these forces in dialectical relation rather than an oppositional one. Gosh, there might be. Imagine that. 
Reign of Terror by Spencer Ackerman, one of the New York Times best books of the year last year, one of all kinds of people's best books of the year lists last year, honestly. But that's a fancy list to get on. I am very humbled by it. There's also an important thing happening outside that courtroom that continues to show that Fenris are buffoons, Mm -hmm. which is that they arouse what Neil Conan of NPR, you know, says in King. The largest demonstration ever seen in Paris. Think about that. Think about it. That, that demonstration. There was a big. Yeah. There have been a lot of big demonstrations in really Paris. Really big ones. Famous ones. Historically impactful ones. We heard the people and sing. Da 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 da. Like there was a whole thing. Kitty looks out and she's afraid. I think it's Colossus or Wolverine or Nightcrawler. Say, like, aren't you looking at what the signs say and aren't you hearing what they're chanting? Those are allies. Mm -hmm. Those are humans who are out on the street to protect the X-Men. The largest rally ever seen in the city of Paris is a monument to Fenris fucking up. Now, do I buy that that would really happen? No, because I know European history. But Claremont writes a really inspiring moment in that scene that is also for narrative purposes kind of going to be what's necessary for Magneto to say like, okay, I was wrong enough. I'll be, you know, Michael Xavier from now on. But, you know, in relationship to Fenris, Fenris go around Europe blowing stuff up and blaming the X-Men and what happens? The people of Paris rally toward the side of the X-Men. Yes. Fuck you fascists, you're bound to lose. Similarly, within the courtroom, the people begin to side with Magneto because Gabby's arguments start to convince them. Gabby also drops in this story that Magneto is known as a point of fact to be a survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp, which is something that the public presumably doesn't know at this point, but now learns. There's a lot of stuff going on here that's shifting the public perception of him as a figure in the same story that Claremont is reshaping our understanding of him as a character that Claremont wants to use in heroic capacity going forward. Fenris show up and they have a great little speech. Like they're very Team Rocket. They love to, you know, prepare for trouble and make it. Do you want to do? I'll Andre, be Andrea. Andre, you be Andre. Okay. Obviously. <laughs> Come on. Andrea goes. We are Fenris, the Great Wolf, before whose dread power the entire world will bow. We have come, Magneto, to deliver the fate you so richly deserve. They are wearing a set of incredible John Romita Jr. designs that are simultaneously... They're truly insane, but they look cool. Yeah, like they're so cool, but also you look at these people and you're like, these people are unwell. Like there is a there is a strong unwell vibe. They are black <laughs> unitards with red jackets, like bomber jackets over them. And they have gold gloves and boots. Andrea's boots are thigh high. And then there are green sashes. This is important. I feel like the sashes tell you who's the dom and who's the sub. Absolutely. Because Andrea, hers, it's crossed over her midsection mm-hmm. in an aggressive and severe way. Whereas Andreas. I can only really describe it as he is bound. Yeah, it's a feminine silhouette, first of all. Like, it has a drape around his thigh, like a garter. Yeah. And, like, crawling up toward... His junk. It's a very, like, bondage-y 
strap, but specifically suggestive. submissive suggestive. Yeah. 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 They have domino masks that are black and green with like the opposite one is green or black on the either one of them. This design is really good. I just think that this is one of Ramita's better supervillain designs. And then they have these weird insignias on their chest that are the same green that I think are supposed to maybe be the eyes of the wolf. I, I can't figure out. I can out never what figure that out what yeah. they mean. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. But in the same way that like fascism makes its symbols into stuff. Well, that's the thing is like the swastika had nothing to do with anything that like Hitler was just into Blavatsky, right? Like it had nothing to do with actual, because in Hinduism and Buddhism, swastikas yeah. mean something very different. Totally different. A big thing about fascism is taking, co-opting symbols from other people mm -hmm. and turning them into something that you think emboldens your argument. I mean- Also resources. Right, and Fenris as a name is specifically meant to evoke a specific strain of neo-Nazism, which is the Norse pagan reconstructionist kind of, you know, skinhead yeah. vibe that was very They would much... wear a sonnen ride if the costume was redesigned today. Yeah. And you, could, you probably couldn't get away with that in standards and practices. Sure, yeah. but I get what you mean. They are calling themselves Fenris, like the Fenris wolf, the monster of Norse mythology, the half-giant or full giant. I guess they're just completely... Giant is a weird... The Jotnar son of uh, of Loki. This is not a Norse mythology podcast. My Norse mythology is pretty shaky. But one of the really key figures in Ragnarok, the big, big, big wolf. You know the one, if you've ever yeah. seen a Norse mythology thing. They are making a very specific choice there, which is to claim not only are we the future, like we are the heirs to Hydra and all of that, but we are also the past. We are an atavistic terror. Yes. We are ancient against the degeneracy of the mind. Exactly. We are the true ancient Europe pushing back all intruders and devouring them for our own purposes yeah. and hunting and killing. Like that is the, it's, I, I, it's one of those things where I get why some people just don't want to read a story with Nazis in it. I get it. But these two, to me, achieve on Claremont and Ramita's part, such a vibration of like... They are little kids pretending to be the big bad wolf. Yeah, and it gets at something so real and it's like a maw, right? It's like you, you look into it and it's the abyss looking back into you. Like, there is nothing to these people, these characters, besides the power that their hate gives them and the power that their belief in their own superiority gives them. And that is exemplified by their power, which we will now finally... <laughs> they touch and they jizz energy. Yeah! It's called sympathetic bioblasting, which is definitely what someone usually has to take me on a couple dates first to do. <laughs> That's a lie. Who am I kidding? Uh, <laughs> they have slightly different powers, which again emphasizes the dom-sub-femdom aspect of their relationship. Oh, does she, does she typically shoot? I haven't paid attention. They to both shoot, but their beams do different things. Oh. They have to touch each other. They have to be making skin contact to fire their blasts and make flashes of light, which is 
interestingly, like it makes them also a mirror to North Star and Aurora, right? Like, sadly, that's the point. Yeah, where like we clasp hands and we make light. So do these two, but it's bad. It's bad news. It's a it's different a, way. It's a different and way. North Star and Aurora sure ain't doing sure that. ain't doing this kind of sympathetic bioblasting, right? So Andreas creates plasma blasts that are like concussive telekinetic force, and Andrea fires disintegration beams. Oh, so she's she's got the death stroke. They're a phaser together, but he's set phasers to stun and she's set phasers to kill. Maybe his shit wasn't strong enough. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe he tried to set him to kill. The reason you're like not 100% clear on that is because I've now looked through, I think, all of their appearances as a pair, certainly. I haven't read every single swordsman issue, but I would say 90% of the time, artists draw her shooting and him clasping. And I think that's definitely the attitude. And in that way, they are also a dark mirror of a lot of things about the Claremont run that we love. These strong female characters, the male characters who support them, the way that gender plays out in Claremont X-Men. This is an example of it twisted to a really evil purpose. And it's the power that Claremont clearly sees in women specifically right in this arc which is about storm finding that power within herself whether or not she has superpowers it's a way of showing that he's not william moulton marston right like he doesn't think that women are inherently morally superior to men but he believes that there is a unique power that women have like strength of will or spirit valerie cooper they always stress she's so strong-willed the shadow king can't fully possess her etc so yeah their power is to touch each other all the time and make death rays with it they are (laughs) they attack the trial and they spend so much time pontificating and being melodramatic and ridiculous that Charles is able to figure out what their weakness is, which is that they have to be touching to fire their blast. He runs in between them, which like starts to- And he's, by this point, he's already dying. Yeah. We spent several issues like establishing that like- He's in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. But this is what leads to him being so grievously injured, which is they end up washing down the Sen because... But before, Fenris. but before, before they bring the Sen down, Magneto pauses when he could kill them. Yes. Just like before with their father. Yes. And says to Charles, what do we do with them? Because Magneto is trying to not be the same Magneto. And the point of the story is also to get him to not quite be that Magneto, even if, as we've established... I agree with that Magneto Magneto in this case. Yeah, no, but, you know. You know, Charles says we have to deliver them to the French authorities, and Magneto faithfully (laughs) obeys. That, I think, probably answers the question of who let Fenris on Krakoa. Oh, Eric did. We'll get there. I thought Charles... Wait, no, I thought Charles did. I'm saying I believe it would have been Charles. Oh, interesting. Because it's Charles in that moment. I think it's both of them, but for different reasons. I think that Charles does it because he thinks that we have to be fair insofar as I have defined fairness, right? Believe that. Eric, I think, would agree to let them in because Krakoa is about him proving that he can compromise for the good of mutant kind as a whole. And there is no mutant more repulsive to him than Thing 1 or Thing 2. 
Fenris-wise. And also the reality is if you've got Apocalypse, if you've got Sinister. Yeah, what makes my trauma special? That we can let Apocalypse in with a clean slate and Selene and Sinister, but oh no, these two are racist against me personally, so they can't come. I think that it is a demonstration of Magneto's commitment to the precepts of Krakoa, and it's of course notable that what shatters his ability to believe in Krakoa is when that fairness can't be applied to his daughter who died in a pogrom. So I think he let them in because I think if he didn't, then that hurts less and I want it to hurt more. Okay. You know what I mean? I'm going to sit with that. I think he said, all right, mm-hmm. for, Krakoa, for Krakoa, and then Krakoa couldn't give him the only thing he wanted. Among the many moral compromises he made to get to Krakoa, one of them was, sure, let them in. I think by the time we get to X-Corp, we get this notion challenged substantially, and I think rather successfully on the X-Corp page. uses Fenris for the most profound challenge to the concept of Krakoan amnesty that we've had, and I think that is one way that they always serve as valuable characters. Fenris yes. are characters that you will never be accused of assassinating. You cannot... <laughs> yeah. You cannot make Fenris do anything that would be too much out of character oh my god you ruined Fenris this would never happen right so they're a great choice of character to use as not them though like if there's a limit to your hospitality Fenris might be the limit you know I don't know if you want to just jump around but this is also a point throughout the 90s X-Men with Fenris yes so pause well, well hold up That's called foreshadowing. Yes, and right now we're going to pause for the Cerebro character file on Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, Fenris. I will take you through their complete publication history from Uncanny X-Men 194 in 1985 up through X-Corp number 5 in 2021. And then we will come back for more with Spencer Ackerman. We will talk about the Fenris twins' odd journey through the 90s all the way to today. And then then we will answer a lot of thoughtful questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's only going to get less appropriate from here. X-Men, X-Men. Andrea and Andreas von Strucker, better known collectively as Fenris, are two of the most loathsome villains in the X-Men's rogues gallery. Created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr., they are the fraternal twin children of Baron Wolfgang von Strucker, a prominent advisor to Adolf Hitler and one of the core architects of Hydra. Andrea and Andreas were altered in utero by Dr. Arnim Zola to have X genes, and their mutant power works through skin-on-skin contact with each other. Perhaps unsurprisingly, then, they are not just Nazi twins, but freaky Nazi twins who are definitely having sex with each other. After their many buffoonish schemes failed to win the respect of their peers in the criminal underworld, Andrea eventually wound up murdered by Baron Zemo, and Andreas, mind-controlled by Kilgrave the Purple Man, briefly became the hero's swordsman, a member of the Thunderbolts. 
Various plot contrivances would bring the twins back together in their classic evil and way too close mode, and they appeared in Tanahasi Coates' run on Black Panther before becoming a significant thorn in Krakoa's side as the New Mutant Nation attempted to establish itself. After betraying Krakoa in Teeny Howard's X Corp, they remain at large. Andrea and Andreas debut in 1985's Uncanny X-Men 194, in which we meet them on safari in Kenya. Andreas flirts with a local Kenyan woman who runs a supply station, and when she rejects him, he attempts to sexually assault her. The woman is rescued by Aurora Monroe, Storm of the X-Men, who has returned to her native Kenya after losing her mutant powers thanks to Project Wide Awake. Even without her mutant gifts, Aurora is easily able to overpower the twins and chase them off. Two issues later, they get their revenge. Andrea shoots Aurora with a hunting rifle, leaving her to bleed to death. This sets the tone for the twins' future adventures. They always fail. Aurora recovers from her injuries and becomes emboldened to lead the X-Men without her powers. In Uncanny X-Men 200, The Trial of Magneto, the twins debut as Fenris when they attack the titular trial, keen to get revenge by assassinating old enemies of their father. Magneto, Charles Xavier, and Gabrielle Haller, a Holocaust survivor who is now the defense attorney representing Magneto to the court. In advance of their assault, after some incestuous BDSM flirting on their yacht, the twins have their henchmen launch false flag attacks throughout Europe, credited to the X-Men, in an effort to turn public opinion against Magneto. This doesn't work, because Fenris's plans almost never work, and eventually they just attack the courthouse, where they do a big melodramatic speech until Xavier figures out their powers won't work if they're separated. Desperate, they launch one last attack that destroys the wall of the courthouse and washes everyone away in the River Seine. This at least allows the twins to escape capture. Four years later, in 1989, Bill Mantlo tosses Fenris at the Avengers in a fun cloak-and-dagger story. Claremont brings them back the following year for a cameo appearance in Uncanny X-Men 260, in which they hang around on a yacht and try to kill Banshee and Forge by blowing up their plane. The twins blow up the plane, but fail to kill Banshee and Forge. In Uncanny X-Men 268, Andrea and Andreas have a cameo role as accomplices to the new villain Matsuo Suriyaba, leader of the Hand. For once, probably thanks to Matsuo, they get a win as they trick Wolverine Jubilee and Psylocke with decoys. Later that year, they appear in Claremont's final Excalibur story, Girls' School from Hack, in which they attempt to blackmail Mesmero into serving them, but end up defeated by the field hockey team at Kitty Pride's new boarding school. After Claremont's departure from the franchise, the Fenris twins continue to work with Matsuo in the adjectiveless X-Men title in 1992, now co-written by Jim Lee and John Byrne. Fenris helped Matsuo retrieve a cryogenic freezing capsule containing the Soviet super-soldier Omega Red. This plot involves the carbonadium synthesizer, and I vowed on this show never to speak of that thing again, so please revisit the Omega Red episode to learn more. Fenris is defeated again, if you were wondering. For the rest of that year, the twins make cameo appearances over various street-level titles as part of the crossover Dead Man's Hand. The Kingpin has fallen, and various crime syndicates are divvying up his holdings, so the Red Skull calls an orderly meeting to figure everything out. The twins are totally upstaged by their half-brother Werner, who detests them, and most of the remnants of Hydra back Werner as leader instead of the twins. In 1993, they appeared in issue of Alpha Flight, but honestly, do not worry about it. Then in 1994 comes The Young Hunt, a crossover also called Child's Play, written by Fabian Niciesa, across his titles X-Horse and New Warriors. The upstarts, young thrill-seekers who kill prominent targets for fun as part of a game, decide to hunt down all the surviving members of the New Mutants and Emma Frost's aliens. Andrea and Andreas have been trying to get into the upstarts game, but the other members find it gauche to associate with them. 
The games master, keen to light a fire under his players' asses, lets Fenris play this round, and the twins target Magma and Empath in Nova Roma. They're repelled by Danny Moonstar, who's at this point apparently a member of the Mutant Liberation Front. See her episode for more on that. After failing to kill Magma, the twins go for the second worst new mutant, Wolfsbane, but are captured by X-Factor. The upstart's plot winds down here, and afterward the twins make only a few appearances for the rest of the 90s. In 1996, they try to steal a device in New York City in the Generation X annual written by Michael Golden, but are once again foiled by children. In 1998, John Ostrander uses them in the Quicksilver solo series, where they're part of the team crafted by Exodus to attack Mount Wondegore, and you can go right the fuck back to last week's episode if you want to hear about Mount Wondegore. The following year, Fabian Niciesa tosses them at Gambit in the Gambit solo series. They try to steal a time-traveling jewel that Remy is also after and utterly fail to get their hands on it. Two years later, in 2001, Niciesa kills off Andrea and incorporates Andreas into his run on Thunderbolts. This is not a Thunderbolts podcast, and this part of the Fenris story is honestly so crazy that I actually don't want to spoil it in the character file. Spencer and I will get into it after the break. Just know that by the end of the 2009 event Dark Reign, both of the Fenris twins are dead. They abruptly return in 2016 in the miniseries Illuminati by Joshua Williamson and Sean Crystal, in which they now own Club Fenris, a lounge for supervillains in New York City. When asked about their unexplained return from the dead, they casually explain that their father took care of it. Later that year, they recur in Ta-Nehisi Coates' run on Black Panther, where they're hired by Ezekiel Stain to help cause chaos in Wakanda. T'Challa and friends eventually beat the shit out of them at their own club. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Andrea and Andreas are two of the many mutant villains to accept an offer of amnesty in exchange for becoming productive members of society in the new mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. The twins recur in Jerry Duggan's run on Marauders, where they join the new Hellfire Trading Company as the Black Knights, personal muscle for Black King Sebastian Shaw, father of their former ally Shinobi Shaw. Seeking more power, they play a larger role in the 2021 miniseries X-Corp by Teenie Howard and Alberta Fauché, in which they petition Monet Saint-Croix and Warren Worthington III for a role on the board of X-Corporation. While Monet and Warren take Krakoan amnesty seriously and believe in offering villains a second chance, they refuse to work with Nazis like Fenris, compelling Fenris to throw in with human competitors and attempt to secretly betray mutant kind. When their plan is exposed and foiled, Andrea and Andreas flee Krakoa to parts unknown, the first fugitives from Krakoan justice. Wherever they are now, they're probably doing something disgusting. X-Men, X-Men. You're now caught up on all of Fenris' appearances in broad strokes, which is good because before the break, we only got to their third appearance. Uh, so we're going to go a bit more briskly, I think, now. I am glad that we took our time, though, because I really wanted to get it what it is about these characters that is so compelling to me it's that they get at a real threat that exists but they suck so it's fun when they fail i think it's a great idea to start going through the various ways in which they fail because yes. now we get to the period in which like Fenris is just constantly like hit on the head. Fenris is flop era. Mallet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fenris's flop era has begun right now. Let me just say before we get to Fenris's flop era to remind listeners who might not have heard the Charles Xavier episode that I am not here of my own volition. I did not 
ever for a moment proposed talking about Fenris. If you go back to the Xavier episode, Connor drafted me for this. Well, there was nobody else they would want to do it with. Because if it was just me and some total Gentile, I would feel like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jerry's dentist from Seinfeld. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I need do it. know what you mean. <laughs> and I'm not, but I would feel that way. <laughs> I needed like a real fucking Jewish Jew to do this. Yeah, me. let's make fun of these fucking Nazis. I also knew that you would be interested. Like I could bring the media studies background to it. Right. Like what is this? What is this archetype? What is this trope? And then you could bring the actual like, here's how fascism operates. And I was just like, this will be good. Well, just because this is going to be someone's first episode of Cerebro. Oh, wow. Just like it's 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 always someone's first comic book, right? It's true. This is going to be someone's first episode of Cerebro. This is going to be someone's first interaction with me. <laughs> I just want to make it clear. Like, I am not a fan of these characters at all. I did not choose this. I'm not. I when I say this. I find them compelling, I don't mean <laughs> I know what that you mean. I, I stand. I just mean they're characters I would love to write is what I mean. They're characters I find really interesting in what they do, in the ways that they transgress what's normal for this story, in the ways that they herald the darker tone to X-Men that's coming soon around the corner with Mutant Massacre. There's just a lot of interesting symbolic stuff with them. And then also, it's really fun when they get smacked on the head with a big cartoon mallet. So let's I love go to see right it. Yeah. yeah. So they flop at killing Magneto and Gabby and Xavier because they blow a hole in the wall and the River Sen rushes in and everybody gets washed out by the River Sen. But they escape in enough time to then show up over in Bill Mantlo's Cloak and Dagger where they join the Jester, uh, a villain I had literally never heard of. This is not a Cloak and Dagger podcast. <laughs> To fight the Avengers, there's just a really, really funny bit that I want to read, which is when they're fighting Captain America, they clasp hands and Andrea blasts at him and she says, You are the same cringing coward our father Baron von Strucker said you were during the war. Captain America says, Strucker was an expert on cowardice, wasn't he? And dodges the blast. Really good troll. That's how you troll these guys. And then hurls his shield between the twins and says, being as how he was a Nazi, which I think is, it's like. If we didn't get in the last panel, Steve. You could have left it there. It was a good burn. But that's because, again, this could be someone's first comic book. And you won't instinctively know that when the Struckers are talking about their dad, they mean (laughs) Hitler's bestie, Wolfgang von Strucker. He throws the shield between them. And Andrea says, watch out, my sister. The American seeks to divide us. They fight Iron Man for a sec then. And then there's a line that I just truly adore because it's so comic booky and just a great example of how it just has a great like Boris and Natasha energy to it. Like they just flop <laughs> constantly. <laughs> Andrea says, I'm tired of the ceaseless conflict, sister. I wish to see the blood of one of our foes spilling upon the ground. And Andrea says, so you shall, sweet sibling, using my disintegration beam. Yikes. She reaches to blast while clasping his hands and says, I shall now slay our father's star-spangled antagonist. Which is just... Can you do an Afrikaans accent? I can't. Okay. Actually, someone wrote in from South Africa last week and I was like, that's one I won't attempt. 
that's just a funny bit because we've now established this is their second appearance as supervillains and it's established a pattern now. They show up, they proclaim themselves in florid speeches, they clasp hands and make sexual innuendos with one another, and then they completely flop. Given that, like, you've already done the character file at this point in the podcast, it seems perhaps m- maybe we don't have to go... We have to do every single one. But, like, we can get instead at kind of the quintessence of the flop era of Fenris, which seems to me very often there's resource extraction involved. <laughs> yes. When they show up in the, in like, X-Men, like, 4 through, I think it's 7. In the 90s stuff, yeah. In the 90s stuff with Omega Red, they're trying to get the carbonadium synthesizer to synthesize carbonadium for them because it's cheaper for of adamantium. Carbonadium is like the Soviets knockoff adamantium. It's not as good as adamantium, but you can make lots of it. So I will bet that in this day and age, you could probably end up coming up with some important financial instruments related to carbonadium futures that could then be used to be arbitraged and ultimately be tools of financial oppression. This is right after Claremont, though, so I just want to mention the only other two Claremont-Fenris stories. Oh, sure. Because they are, again, failures that I find really delightful. I mean, now, in this first one, they do kill some people, but not the people they were trying to kill, which I think they is the critical... They really kill the people. Right. They're, yeah. <laughs> they set out to do... So Banshee and Forge are planning to travel to Cairo for reasons go back to the banshee episode if you want to know more about that but evil moira because moira is at this point possessed by the shadow king or was she in retrospect who knows who knows moira tips off like shadow king moira tips off fenris so the plane explodes and then we see the twins standing on their yacht she is in a tiny black string bikini He is in a little black Speedo. He is fruitily holding a glass of champagne and then clasping her hand, which is glowing with her disintegration beam. He says, splendid shooting, Andrea. And she says, we are struckers, Andreas. We do not miss. Which is funny because she didn't hit the right people. She then says, and now to deal with any possible loose ends left hanging about the pathetic little airstrip. More things explode. He says, that should put paid to any interfering mutants. Pity the execution couldn't be up close and personal. Don't be greedy, dear brother. What matters is that they're dead. Whoever the mysterious informant was who informed us of Banshee's plans, Fenris is in his dead. Except then we immediately see Banshee flying away with Forge because they've completely failed to kill the people they were trying to kill. Their next appearance is in Chris Claremont's final Excalibur story, Girls' School from Hack. The, we gotta spend a fucking hour talking about this story. This is That's one of the That's why I didn't craziest... want you to skip ahead because you needed to. I needed to give you some runway for Girls' School from Hack. <laughs> Girls' School from Hack is a story I read as a literal child. Okay. If you've never read this story... <laughs> Nothing like this will ever happen ever again. So spinning off the cross-time caper, Kitty Pride got sent back to Earth-616 and Opal Loon Satyr 9, the evil version of Saturn, well, the eviler version of Saturn 9, the fascist version, actually, as it happens, who has long ago murdered and replaced Earth-616's Courtney Ross, her dimensional counterpart on Earth-616, in a very, like, also Victorian exploitation trope has become Kitty's, like, 
senpai, basically. Like, I don't even know a word for it in, like, English, but she becomes, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like... She, okay, she t- she enrolls Kitty in a posh British Finishing school. school. Yeah. Is like, I'll be your patron here, Catherine. Because Kitty wants to apply to Oxford, but the degrees from Xavier's don't count. But the thing about girls' school from heck... <laughs> Why does Satyr 9 send Kitty to boarding school? Unclear. Never explained. It doesn't matter. How does this factor into her evil plan? Don't worry about it. We will never know. But Chris saw an opportunity to send Kitty Pride to girls' school in Britain, and he did. If anyone, like, if you've ever, like, had fun on, like, an afternoon, like, at the batting cages, and, like, you just get into a groove where, like, the machine is shooting and, like, you're just connecting on everything and, like, you're, you're, you're swatting these balls every which way. Like, you're not really focusing on either, like, power or, like, accuracy. Or something. You're just having fun hitting. That's Chris Claremont in these insane issues in which, like, all of the asides are just increasingly insane. You get, like, Mesmero in a smoking jacket narrating, like, Robert Evans in The Kid Stays in the Picture <laughs> while he has ensorcelled Margaret Thatcher. This is Claremont going like, I'm on my way out. You're going to get what I want to write. And here it is. There's there's, there's this amazing, it's one panel. I'm sorry. It, like, because also the point of this, Girl School from Heck, I read this as a child and just thought like, okay, this is like a fun school competition that like isn't so much different from like, I don't know, age of, pro- I would have been like eight years old, I guess, maybe something like that, eight or nine. And so you you think of it in like this innocent way. It's like Babysitter's Club or Hardy Boys or something like that, where like, okay, like the caper is, is that they show up in this scenario and like Kitty doesn't get along with a rival there. And then eventually they, they come and bring their relationship around through like solving a problem together. This is vastly more insane than that. Like it starts out being about Kitty not fitting in at boarding school to like, you know, there's a lot of upskirt shots in this, man. It's, there's a lot of lingerie in this. Girls' school, like women in prison, is yeah. a well-worn exploitation film genre. So it kind of suggests that, like, she has, however you might want to explore the meaning of this world, resolved the issue with her rival and gets, for reasons, into, like, Kitty Pride, who eventually is wearing a blonde wig, is doing a cheerleading competition at the first ever... New York Giants game at Wembley Stadium. Someday, a British Jewish scholar who is neither you nor I, because we are not British, needs to specifically like break down the aesthetics of Judaism and Anglophilia in Chris Claremont's work. Like so much of this stuff, especially anything with Kitty on Excalibur and Kitty in Europe feels like it's dealing with that weird identity of like, my mother is a Jew from Scotland or whatever, you know, like that's such a, and I grew up in New York. Lawrence Taylor, the legendary Giants linebacker is in this story. There's so much going on here. Kitty, like why, why in the world, if you're, if you're, I don't know how Chris decided like the cheerleading competition was going to be the plot device out of this story. 
The subplot is Fenris are trying to blackmail Mesmero into working for them and Mesmero like sneers Excalibur to protect him and all of this. But that's not the A plot. It's nowhere near the A plot. It's, it's like not even the F plot. No. Like there's Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> Kitty faces into the fucking, like why the New York Giants, Chris? Why have you made like the New York football Giants? Like, put them in Wembley Stadium in the 1980s? Like, because the New York Giants at Wembley Stadium is Chris Claremont's dream. Like, that is what he wants <laughs> in his heart. He wants to bring New York to London. That's what he wants. Did Lawrence Taylor share his coke with Kitty Pride? She is a fresh 15 in these issues, so I would hope not. I mean, definitely do not Google... Lawrence Taylor and underage. Uh, X-Men, X-Men. One more aside, there's this amazing panel. And again, Fenris isn't even in the fucking, like, the F-plot. Brian and Megan are on a fake, tel like, they're on a television set. Like, they're just on the set of a TV show because the story just goes there. And, like, I, I just love posh, stupid, beefcake Brian Braddock and his working class fey wife. I love them so much. Like, can I just, can I, I can't do accents like you, but like, he's like, it's a television set, Megan, meant to represent some sort of sports oriented pub. And she's like, oh, you silly man, don't you know anything? This is sporting life. The best, most popular show on telly puts EastEnders and Coronation Street fair to shame. I don't miss an episode. And it's like, I also just love, like, this is so unfamiliar to Brian, even down to, like, what shows his wife likes to watch. Brian doesn't know what Coronation Street is. <laughs> Betsy does. Anyway, Fenris shows up and they get the shit beat out of them by literal children. Yes. That's all you need to know about Fenris in girls' school. The girls' field hockey team beats the shit out of Fenris and uh, Fenris is defeated. That's it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the, cape, the caper doesn't matter. Their last Claremont story is in Uncanny 268, which sets up where their plot goes from here, because with Claremont's abrupt departure, all of the characters he was setting up for the plot that becomes the upstarts are just kind of there already, but what happens with them is decided by other writers. Fenris attempt to create a business partnership with Matsuo Suriyaba, the leader of The Hand, a new character that Claremont has introduced, who in the following issue turns Psylocke Asian. Go back to episode one of uh, Cerebro. Mm -hmm. For more on that, or to the episode on Kanan, which obviously goes into that storyline more in depth, it's established that Baron von Strucker, their father, attempted to make a pact or alliance with the Hand back in the day, meaning in World War II when Germany and Japan were Axis powers together, and now they want to make it happen. So it's a coming together of this new villain with villains who were in a very classic Claremont story that remind you like, oh, these are really scuzzy characters, right? It seems to me like the upstart story was on some level a critique of the younger generation too, right? Or like a critique of... It was nihilism. Like the destruction that the upstarts inflict the chaos, it's a game to them. It's a literal game to them. Yes. They're having fun, and it's its not 
any deeper than that. These are rich kids hunting, I think you put it earlier, the most dangerous game. Yes. With characters like Trevor Fitzroy and Fabian Cortez and Shinobi Shaw and Matsuo, on his way out, Claremont presents these sort of young starlets and teen idols of the underworld who are ready for their close-up, but are not actually really that ready. By the time we get to, like, X-Men, the the adjectiveless X-Men of the 90s, and Fenris has some scheme to get the carbonadium, and that's what they're into it for. (laughs) The Alliance is starting to split apart. Like, we're not seeing something durable. What I also love about those issues is, like, the way Fenris gets their shit rocked in particular is courtesy of Betsy Braddock. Sure is. Who psychic knives the shit out of Andrea Von Strucker. And I have in my notes the Captain Britain of Earth 161. (laughs) Then they turn up in one off stories in like Daredevil, Nomad, Punisher, Alpha Flight. They're just sort of around doing Hydra related things. The Red Skull calls a summit of different Hydra factions and. The Fenris twins' half-brother, Werner, who they don't like very much, is there and is like, I should be in charge of yada, yada, yada. Andrea and Andreas are really annoyed and they're like, where does that leave us? And you get the vibe that even within Hydra, nobody likes these two. Or respects them. Right. Like, they are literally the bosses fail children that we all just have to tolerate. But even the Nazi goons of Hydra are just like fucking Fenris, which is very funny. Then they turn up in X-Force and New Warriors for the Young Hunt, hunt. in which the upstarts target the surviving members of the New Mutants and the Hellions in the crossover called Child's Play or Young Hunt, which I think is funnier. Young Hunt is much funnier. These issues fucking rip. These are great. This is Fabian having so much fun. Fabian's in his bag in these. This is X-Force 32 and 33 and New Warriors 45 and 46. And it's just absolute Fabian Nisiesa nonsense in the best possible way. Basically, they're hunting the new mutants at this point. Yes. As part of the Upstarts game, except they're not technically members of the Upstarts, but we'll get to that. So this starts off in X-Force 32, where you know Andreas sucks because he's horny for Magma. There's that, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, Magma, who has remained blonde after 2,000 years in the Amazon jungle, her bloodline is probably getting more than a little Fenrisy here and there. This is an amazing glow-up issue for Empath. This might be like the best thing Empath has ever done. This <laughs> is Empath's to... <laughs> big heroic moment, yeah. <laughs> he tries to kill Fenris by simply mind-controlling their goons and having their goons yeah. open fire on it. <laughs> Good for you, Manuel. No one ever, you know, you 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 got one thing right ultimately. This is the story where the big Nova Roma retcon happens, by yeah. the way, which is delicious. Fenris is calling Nova Roma. <laughs> they get their shit rocked by like extreme 90s return Danny Moonstar. Yes, MLF like, Moonstar with the yeah. Psy arrows. And the bodice. And the mask. That look. Yeah, the mask. It's, is 
it's Wild stupid shit. 90s porn but i gotta say for a stupid 90s porn costume it is such a banging costume i had the trading card she looks incredible and like these issues are just so much fun you should you should you should read them like, look them look them up yeah there's so much there's so much fun and then this is the important part as as far as federus is concerned games master calls a zoom <laughs> games master is the omnipath who runs the upstarts game and Fenris have not been allowed to be part of the actual game because everyone thinks they're a bit declassé. And that's the thing. It's Fitzroy, Sienna Blaze, Graydon Creed, and Shinobi. And as an entire aside, Games Master, like, throws shade at them for not letting Fenris in the club. He's like, what, you think you're so cool? I don't understand why you won't play with Fenris. What, you think you're so much better than Fenris? Come on! It's, it's amazing to think just like all of these people together, particularly like shitheads like Shinobi Shaw, pieces of shit like Graydon Creed. Fabian Cortez. like Fabian Cortez. They're all like, oh, no. Oh, no. Fenris. I'm not, not Fenris. Fenris. No, and not that's, Fenris. again, that's, that's... what Fenris exposes by existing <laughs> in the narrative is that exact thing, which is like, oh, no, not that. I may be conservative, but I'm not a Nazi. I'm a libertarian. Right. Enough of the... You know. <laughs> You know, like, I, you know, I, I just, I, you love seeing the delusion that they draw the line. Exactly. <laughs> and the games master who is completely unemotional because he perceives the thoughts of everyone at all times is just like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, honestly, guys. What's it about? And then he gives them <laughs> to like really light a fire under everyone's ass for the young honey. He's like, actually, I'm, uh. I'm chipping them in. They're in. They're in the game now. And everybody's like, oh my God, I can't lose to Fenris. Yeah. There's, okay, so um, does Quicksilver, do the Quicksilver issues come next? There's a, Can we go to those? Yeah, they make a brief appearance in the Gen X annual 96, but. Oh, and that's also a really good issue. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a real fun one. And it's again, them getting their shit rocked by children. By children, by Jubilee in this in this case. <laughs> they have this, it's, again, classic Fenris story. They have a scheme. The scheme is always like to get some MacGuffin. Yeah, they're like, we need to steal the mutagen generator or whatever. They have this thing where it's like, we will make mutant powers go out of control and we're not going to stop and think, even though we'll, we'll have someone say it on panel that this didn't occur and that this could work on us Yeah, because well. we like, are mutants. And like, it just resolves itself in... Like the most like pfft, way like is is it like an archetypal Fenris story? Like Jubilee just blows them up in that. Yeah, shit. Gen X Jubilee fucked you up, Nazis. And then they show up in the Quicksilver solo because I cannot escape the Siege of Wondagore. You say it's not a high evolutionary podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> but this is fucking crazy. These these issues make no sense at all. But what's funny is that like once again, acolyte factions are together like the, the the point is like they're trying to get a cure for the legacy virus that supposedly yes but exodus is lying to all of them he exodus actually just wants them, the yeah. isotope e which is the thing they wanted that he wants to steal from the high evolutionary he lies to a bunch of like people dying of the legacy virus like pyro and pyro feral, and feral to be like hey i have a cure that i will give you if you help me do this and then fenris is also there but like fenris know that it's a lie and they think that that's fine and funny and simultaneously pyro is trying again and again to just make clear like i do not fuck with fenris no i'm here because i'm dying of the legacy virus but i am not here to be buddy buddy with fenris racial purity is your thing i can't do it 
The high evolutionary has a gorilla head for some reason. It doesn't matter. He's evolving and devolving. Don't don't worry about it. The 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 big thing is that they don't get the isotopy, and so Exodus dumps them all in the Savage Land. Classic Fenris. Mm-hmm. The plan goes horrifically awry. They get their shit rocked in a funny way. That's sort of the classic ingredients for a Fenris story. I think like after that. They sort of like fall out of X-Men stuff for a while, don't they? They fall out of everything for a while, honestly. That's in 98, that Quicksilver story. And then they pop up in Niciesa's Gambit solo very Mm. briefly. Yeah, but hysterically, they are wearing, like, (laughs) there's something to be stolen, you know, classic Gambit story. Yeah, they want the magical gemstone that Gambit is also trying to get called the Momentary Princess. They're at a black tie affair. Everyone else is in black tie stuff, and they show up in bondage gear. Yeah. I can, like, Andreas is wearing, like, a red leather harness. Mm-hmm. Andrea, I can't describe this. I'm going to need your, I'm going to need your help for this. I, she's, she looks kind of, she looks kind like, I don't know what this, the, the ruffle thing around, the ruffle collar is, and then it's. I don't know, man. You go for it. You go for it. I don't know. I can't. I'm, Stop I'm losing talking because I'm pulling it up. <laughs> what is this, Connor? She's got a riding crop. He is wearing kind of a wrestling singlet. It's red, like PVC, maybe, I would call it. I read it. that as leather. But it your, could your also be leather. Right but they're looking very, like, latexy. He has an eyebrow piercing here, and she and has And, like, one of those pierced. disgusting little, like, soul patches. Yeah. Sorry to... No offense to anyone who, who does that, <laughs> but, like, maybe reestablish some priorities now that you know that a literal Nazi supervillain does They're that. just updated for 1999, is what I'm saying, or I guess... He looks is, like um... he could be the singer of Third Eye Blind. Yes, exactly. And he has, like, a Mark McGrath haircut, and she's looking very Gwen Stefani, honestly. <laughs> oh, my God. What is it? Is it... Is it... Who does... Steve my sunshine is that's fenris len. len is fenris len? they were siblings <laughs> did you know that about len no. okay so here we have fenris is len yeah uh so but what's she she's, wearing, she's wearing tell, tell the people she's wearing like a leather boned corset that's hot pink it's yellow in the middle and it has like leather belts as the buckles it has a matching collar she's holding a riding crop she has like an elizabethan collar on is that like how, okay, yeah. the white ruffles, but then it's mirrored by her skirt, which is like sort of a fancy pleated tutu situation. Absolutely everyone else is in black tie attire. Right, like Including fine evening Gambit. gowns and tuxedos. And you got just you got Rem you got out. Remy in a tuxedo. Yeah. And this is what they show up with. This is an issue featuring Kendra, which is always fun to me. Andreas, I'm, I'm, I just turned the page a couple pages. To, well, what's important is is that it it goes kind all the way suggests... down the body. It's again, just so we're clear, he is her sex slave. He's definitely her sex slave. She's got the riding crop. We left off the Claremont line when they're on the yacht. There's also that bit where she surprises him, and he's like, "Oh," and she's like, "Don't worry, I won't punish you this time." This is also where we learn <laughs> that like Gambit has fucked them both. Yes. Why don't you read that part? So he, uh, Andreas walks up, Gambit's standing in his way as he's wearing this ridiculous outfit. And as like he bumps into to Gambit, he goes, LeBeau, please remove yourself. And Gambit goes, 
Said the same thing four years ago when I was stuck to your sister on that velour. And he goes, I remember. And I shall make you pay for that incident too after I have the princess in my grasp. And then Gambit says, remember you mentioning something about that too, but you were talking about Fergie. Meaning... Fergie like Sarah Ferguson? I think like the Duchess of York? Weird shit, but who knows? Weird, it's topical 90s reference, sliding time scale. Speaking of Fergie... If Fenris is on a sex yacht, I promise you Prince Andrew is there. Wasn't he her wasn't Yeah, her, but yeah, married? but I'm thinking about it and like do you think this is too dark? Do you think Fenris would hang <laughs> out with It's not too dark for this episode. Do you think Fenris would hang out with Jeffrey Epstein? Definitely. You think? Absolutely. Well, I just it's specifically like the Jewish factor, but I guess that like Prince Andrew probably doesn't like Jewish people any more than Fenris does. Not to cast aspersions on the royal family, but you know. But also like Fenris again, Nazism is syncretism. Right. It's no, you're right, they'd adapt. We have to stop. Constantly. We can't this is not a Ghislaine podcast. <laughs> we cannot. We cannot. We cannot. We simply cannot. That's one of their last appearances for a long time as Fenris, because shortly after this, I mean I say shortly, it was two years later, but Nisiesa again brings them back for Citizen V and the V Battalion, a mini series that invents this golden age hero and gives you all the backstory for this golden age hero. But the point is that the legacy of the hero has been secretly claimed through body swap shenanigans by Baron Zemo who was his arch nemesis or whatever. This is not a Thunderbolts podcast, but this ties into the plot going on in Thunderbolts. And in this story, Andrea is pretty savvy, actually, and figures out that Citizen V is actually Baron Zemo somehow possessing Citizen V, and he kills the shit out of her so that she won't tell anyone. There's a moment in this miniseries. This miniseries is great, by the way. It's really good, yeah. It's it's so good. I don't care about any of these characters, and I loved reading this story. Well, that's, again, that's, like, why when Thunderbolts really works, it's because you're like, who the fuck? It's very Suicide Squad that yeah. way. I mean, it, there would be no Thunderbolts were there not a Suicide Squad, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it all comes out of that concept, that Estrander concept. The character who then goes on to be Citizen V Mm -hmm. is just like this amazing fucking Giga Chad who in the span of one page literally grabs Andreas by the nuts, squeezes, gelts him, like proves that, that, that he's a piece of shit, immediately endearing him to Andrea. Yes. So Andrea, Andrea is like, there's no other way to put it. She's turned on by this. Yes. No, like, she's, he is, he, he is, he is just like, she's thrilled that he is cucking her, her brother. brother, which is a really wild sentence. Well, it gets wilder because this is literal Andrea dialogue after like this, this guy whose name I don't give a shit about. Like it's Baron Zemo. Like, oh, okay. Well, he does so, an expo. Dump. It's Nazi on Nazi violence. So it's okay to enjoy it. Well, now, well, it sucks. I didn't realize that he was. You didn't realize, now, yeah, no. And now I feel a lot worse about this. No, no, but. it's okay. It's okay. You didn't have the context, but that's the thing is he's cosplaying an American hero, and so that's what he says. But he does have very little regard for them, even Baron Zemo. Like again, this is it's not. This is not to be clear. World War Two era Baron Zemo. This is his son, also Baron Zemo. Thunderbolts as a book is in many ways about can Baron Zemo be a hero? And the answer, as it turns out, is no. <laughs> but, but along the way... Along the way, they, he, there's the a similar plot. Fenris yes. is 
Yeah. And then in New Thunderbolts, we get the Andreas as swordsman storyline, which I think is really interesting. Honestly, this stuff is pretty good. Like, your mileage may vary on whether there is any reason ever to attempt to do a can this guy be a hero arc with the guy who was introduced to us with that scene in Kenya in Uncanny X-164. That's the thing that you have to gauge for yourself. Fabian Nicieza is a great writer. I mean, the real thing that he does here that I guess is smart is it's like... If you look at these two characters, the way that Claremont wrote them, the more obviously gung-ho type is her, and she is also the more dominant one. And so if you're going to kill one of them and have the other have a crisis of faith in Nazism, the submissive one is the one you want to explore. So it makes sense. You kill her. You have him learn what it means to be alone and on his own and not half of this whole. The problem, I think, with it for me, you know, it's funny. This is this is the aesthetic mm-hmm. getting me. Because we were just talking earlier about how, like, Project Wide Awake isn't any less evil because Val Cooper is doing it, right? And these are both heinous Nazis. So it's like, why does this thought even occur to me? But I'm like, it's unfortunate to kill the girl <laughs> to motivate the male <laughs> character, right? Like they do fridge Andrea. They fridge her. They fridge Andrea and do something almost unspeakably gruesome. Well, right. So basically, Swordsman, it turns out that his turn toward heroism, and this is part of why I think it works, is like, he's not genuinely turning over a new leaf, really. He has been captured and tortured into complete brainwashing territory by Zebediah Kilgrave, the purple man, who you may know, listeners, as the villain of the Jessica Jones TV series on Netflix, that first season that was so, so good. I haven't watched the other seasons because I heard they weren't as good and I loved the first season so much. So I was like, I'm going to leave it there. There was more Jessica Jones. Yeah, there are three seasons of it, apparently. Oh, shit. That first season's great. That first season was awesome. It's really great. really wonderful, yeah. But yeah, the Purple Man is sort of a manifestation of rape as a character in the same way that Mastermind is in the X-Men franchise. The Purple Man can tell you anything and you will do it. He can give you any command. He can leave them in your head for a long time and have them activate later. He primarily uses this power to fuck people who don't want to fuck him. So he's really gross. Like this is about the only, if you were to say like, who's grosser than Fenris, right? Like it's a limited very small pool. Very small pool of characters to choose from. Many of them other Nazis. Right. You know, you, it's you like really gotta go to like You gotta Red go to like the territory. Red Skull, right? Yeah. This guy's up there though. So it's him who Baron Zemo secretly behind the scenes tasked with reprogramming Andreas as part of a larger scheme that you don't have to worry about. But the thing that was really interesting to me as a young gay reader of these comics at the time was that the specific thing that causes Andreas to break and actually start questioning his entire worldview. First, Kilgrave compels him to flay Andrea's corpse and tan her skin to make a hilt for his new sword so that he can use his mutant power by having contact with his sister's flesh. A hilt for his sword. 
she is turned into a hilt for his sword and nothing more and that's the thing it's like that's what i'm what i'm saying is the story is kind of misogynist but but i but it's fenris because it's fenris and like and because Storm should have fucking killed her. Well, that's the thing. It's Storm like, should have killed her. Magneto should have killed her. Right. Up. Like, someone should have killed this woman a long time ago. <laughs> but it, 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 I think what it is is that she is so disgusting on panel in her abject racism and objectification of others that to see her turned into an object, there's like a sick justice to it. At this point, we foreclosed on any prospect of justice. Right, There's like, only it's a kind of perverse. satisfying depravity that when you think about the pleasure it brings you, you feel terrible. And that is what the Nazi exploitation genre was about. Mm-hmm. To go way, way back, that idea, the Marquis de Sadian idea of, like, let's get down in the nastiest shit imaginable and reflect on how that makes us feel. What does that make you feel like? What does it feel like as a thought experiment to imagine the most horrible things you can imagine? And that is the kind of grossness that these characters bring to the surface and then can Lance... I'm sorry, what do you... You know, what these people believe, what animated them, prompted their real-life fathers to not only murder on a mass scale our relatives but to skin them as well but to defile them to 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 turn them into objects into things into things and so i'm not gonna really have a problem i don't wish this to be within me no but there is a rage in me that's like, who's a lampshade now, bitch? Yeah. I mean, the lampshades, that was Ilsa Koch, the inspiration for the she-wolf of the SS. Is that really? Oh my god. Yeah, the Witch of Buchenwald. Look it up, but strong stomach, please. Because here's the other thing that the Fenris twins get at in their use of Fenris as a name and also in all of their sort of iconography and pagan symbolism the Nazis were really into the occult. Hitler was yes. really into the occult. Read Michael Burley on this. He was specifically really into the teachings of Helena Blavatsky, who Mark Miller, I will hand it to Mark Miller when he does something I think is clever. In Mark Miller's stories that introduced Gorgon, the character who has become more of a factor on Krakoa, he has this complex affair with Baron von Strucker's widow, who's this like 175-year-old evil shriveled up hag. One of the things that gives her, like, cred in Hydra is that she was Blavatsky's, like, bestie. They were, like, best friends. Helena Blavatsky, if you're not familiar, was sort of one of the mothers of the spiritualist movement, specifically, like, spirit mediumship and all that stuff back in the 19th century. She had some very interesting theories about the Aryan race that were completely pseudoscientific and mystical in nature and that Hitler got very attached to. The Baron creating Fenris through experimentation in utero and all this stuff. Like, it has the feeling, and this happens in a lot of Red Skull stories, of, like, Nazi black magic, right? But it's in a scientific way because this is an X-Men comic. The page that I want to want to point out this is in new thunderbolt 17 which is like when a lot of the reveals happen about like how andreas got turned into swordsman he says 
No longer being controlled, but not the least bit in control either. Still playing the part others cast me in. And he is wrapping the leather of his sister around the hilt of his sword. Trying to find find balance? No. And he pictures her laughing with her head tilted back, drinking wine. Trying to find a reason to go on? Any reason. She has been reduced to this object. He continues to wrap it. And then he says especially after what was done to me. And the next panel is the purple man in a Speedo with the same glass of wine. What he made me do. After a lifetime of debauchery, how can I justify feeling debased? After a lifetime of privilege, how could a man who wanted for nothing still need everything? Then he goes and attacks a Hydra base because... Yada, 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 his personal journey. This ends with him getting stabbed in the chest by Norman Osborn and thrown off a mountain. So it's not a complete heroic arc, let's say. I've done a lot of reporting over the years about torture. And you stare into a heart of darkness doing that. You are confronted, I believe it's Giorgio Agamben who talks about it in terms of being reduced to mere life. It's a disgusting experience that really does show the depravity of the torturer and exposes who, in fact, is the inhuman in this in this arrangement. You do that enough and you don't want to see it happen to absolutely anyone, including people you hate. I will, however, say that you should put at the front of the queue of sympathy <laughs> everyone, the innocent people, the righteous people, the persecuted people who have this experience done to them. And then you can get to Andreas von Strucker. To sympathy for the devil, right? Like the thing I think is interesting is just that when we meet Fenris in Kenya, Andrea is treating the human beings like objects less valuable than the animals around them. And Andreas is trying to rape those same humans. And they don't see these humans as people because they're black. In this story that undoes them completely, she is turned into an object and he is raped for months on end by the purple man. And... Again, it's something where if you told me about and people have asked me about this story, they're like, have you heard about like when Fenris and this and that and like the swordsman? And I'm like, yeah, that story, it's crazy. But I don't mean it's crazy in the sense that I object to it. This is, again, why these characters are interesting to me, because they are so loathsome, but they've never been in a story that I felt like didn't get it. They've never been in a story that I felt like glorified them or glorified the way that they think or did anything but undercut the way that they think and how little and small and foolish their world is. And so this is a a beat that in any other story, I would be like, this is homophobic, you know, or or like the idea that the worst thing that could happen to the male character is gay sex, you know, but in the context of this being a story about a man who is a Nazi and a rapist himself, 
it's more about his sins than it is about that, right? It's like the worst thing that either of these two people can imagine is to be treated the way that they have yes. cavalierly they treated the people they treat. consider as impure or unlike them or savage or whatever. And this is a sequence in which we see that what is their grand undoing is for each of them in turn to be reduced to the kind of objectification they were doing to these people. And when we look at torture, we are ultimately confronted with something about ourselves. It's actually not unlike exactly what George R. R. Martin does with Cersei Lannister, with Theon. actually. Well, with Theon and also. And most profoundly with Theon Greyjoy, yes. Those are the two characters in particular. And with Theon, it has this same thing where the great horror is the castration, is the gay rape, is that. But there I also don't really have a problem with it. Like, I, I mean, and, and if you're saying what, because you only watch the TV show, it's a lot more read, charged yeah, yeah, in the, the book. Books. It's different. Yeah. It's very different in the book. But Cersei and Theon are punished by being made into abject creatures like the ones that they proclaimed other people to be. Like, it's the same kind of thing. Those two chapters, like the one where we really come to understand what's happened to Theon and the one that's truly transcendently written, I think, where Cersei is paraded through the streets. In the book, that, that scene is just yes, incredible. Yes, it's, it's unforgettable. You're punished for the things that aren't wrong. And this is why it's not justice. This is why it's not justice. The reason why it's not justice has is not simply about the means employed to inflict this upon him. It's that like with Cersei being paraded and stripped naked and sexually humiliated and assaulted on that march, Kilgrave is not punishing Fenris for being a Nazi. No. That's not the point. There's nothing that Kilgrave is doing to Andreas in the name of expiating the Nazi among them. Kilgrave doesn't give a shit that Andreas is a Nazi. Kilgrave looks at Andreas like he looks at the rest of the world as food. Kilgrave thinks it will be fun to take this alpha male ideologically. Never yeah, true. We know, yeah, exactly. but when his sister's not around, yeah. guy and break him into a gay sex slave. That's what Kilgrave thinks would be funny. And it's not anything more than that it's what will give Kilgrave a thrill an erotic thrill a power thrill whatever exactly the reason I mentioned that like as a gay kid this made me sit up and take notes was we had so few on panel confirmed gay things mm. at this time and so this was a moment that really stood out and it's unfortunate that it's in the context of it treated as violence rape and right and, yeah Zebediah Kilgrave, diversity win question mark right but like <laughs> it's like you think Sebastian Shaw is a questionable one what was interesting about this to me was the way that he imagined, like the way that it flashes back, Kilgrave is drawn as very beautiful and, and enticing. There was something almost suggesting in this story that like, maybe this guy's big crisis is that he's gay and like this whole thing with his sister was like a maladaptive, like crazy. And then thankfully, because while if that's where it was going, that's interesting. That would not be diversity win. I got to be honest. So I'm glad that it doesn't go there. When Fabian leaves the book, Warren Ellis is on it for a bit. That's who wrote the scene where the apparently clone Andrea gets topless and tells 
Andreas to to brush your hair. hair. Yeah. And then it all comes to a head in Dark Rain. Dark Rain rules, I'm just saying. Dark Rain Dark Rain is a favorite Marvel era for me. It's interesting, certainly. It's interesting stuff. Andreas has been going crazier and crazier, especially after the clone Andrea got killed too. Osborne like leaves him out of like some of the plans. Andreas freaks out and is like, I'm going to go public. I'm going to ruin you. And <laughs> Norman Osborne just grabs him, pulls his sword out of his hilt and impales him with it and throws him off the mountain. <laughs> and it's a quite a boss bitch moment for Norman Osborne. Yeah. Honestly, it is the final flop for one Andreas von Strucker, <laughs> at least for a while. That one's Bendis and like the idea of I'm going to do a whole speech and then someone's just going to stab me in the gut is very Brian Michael Bendis style of humor. Mm. Right. So, yeah, there's a bit later in the event. It's been ages since I read Dark Rain, but there's a scene where this might even be after it. I've read a lot of that stuff because it was when I was like trying to dip back in Strucker and Osborne have a Zoom. And we're saying a Zoom about all of these. Like, yeah, because-, because now we know what that means. Norman is like, FYI, I killed your fucking twins. And Strucker is like, well, then I owe you another favor, which is really funny. <laughs> I got rid of your failed children for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it on them for a bit. Until they pop up without explanation in Illuminati, like we said earlier, where they're running Club Fenris. I texted Connor, I texted him, like, the the panel (laughs) where we get into Club Fenris, and I texted him that panel and just wrote, Dive Square. (laughs) I have no comment. If you know, you know. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, so Club Fenris is, is is hopping. Their one rule is that you can't kill people there. Which is crazy. What's the point of Club Fenris then? Well, I mean, I guess if you're Fenris and you're inviting people into your home, you want to make sure they promise not to kill you first because these same people have killed you a bunch probably at yeah, some point I guess in the that, past. That makes... so, <laughs> <laughs> they explain that like daddy brought them back to life somehow, but it's not really explained how. That's in 2015, I want to say, 2015, 2016. Yeah, I think it's Tanahasi next. Yeah, so soon after that, they pop up in Black Panther, where they are working for Ezekiel Stane, who is an Iron Man and Black Panther villain. They get their shit rocked by a whole bunch of Black superheroes who team up, which is fun. Misty Knight, Storm, and Manifold, and Luke Cage team up with T'Challa. It's always nice to see Fenris get the shit kicked out of them. This is the classic vibe, is like Storm kicking the shit out of Fenris is their first appearance, right? He clearly had a ton of fun writing this. Oh, yeah. And and particularly issue 16, where Mm -hmm. where the fight ultimately happens, where they decide to just take it to Club Fenris. Right, so So after, like, Stain's plan doesn't quite work out. Let's just point out for a second, the plan is, again, what it always is. It's resource extraction and domination. And false flags. Like, they are funding a revolution of the people within Wakanda, specifically because they don't like the monarchs of Wakanda. And the people leading this rebellion don't actually care either. They're just taking money from literal Nazis. So... Yeah, Tetu, not a good guy. Not a good guy. Not the hero that you might be looking for if you come to it from a critique of the monarchy. Exactly. 
the book is about grappling with, is there any way to have this institution exist and make a better Wakanda? Like they draft a new constitution. That's a lot of what Coates is grappling with. I just think that regardless of like my relationship with ta these are some of the best comics of the last 10 years. ta Black Panther run is, I think, legit classic all through Intergalactic Empire of Wakanda. This is not a Black Panther podcast, but... If you just like comics, they're fucking incredible. I quite liked it. I hadn't read all of it until recently. I'd, I'd like dipped in and out with Storm stuff that I heard was good. I'm just not, you know, a big... There's a Jen Bartell issue. Avengers it's reader. So, the stuff is so great, and particularly the longer his run went on, I felt... In issue 16, they end up at Club Fenris, where they're all fighting... The Wrecking Crew have been hired as bouncers at Club Fenris, which is interesting because Thunderbolt was in the Illuminati story earlier as a, one of the people who come in as part of this group, like, oh, Club Fenris. But now he's working there because he's once again with the Wrecking Crew because he always winds up back with the Wrecking Crew. And for those who don't know, like, he's black. Yes, that's the, he's the black one in the Wrecking Crew. They are otherwise white guys. He is also like a nuclear scientist, but he is working as one of the Wrecking Crew, like construction themed bad guys. And he has an interesting scene here where he talks about how they called him the Black Bruce Banner. And he says that first to his, God, which one is that? This is not a Wrecking Crew podcast. It's the Blonde. Um, um, pile driver. Yeah. He says to pile driver, like, oh, I was the, you know, I was the black Bruce banner, yada, yada, yada. And, and pile driver is a great line in response. Yeah. <laughs> he gives him a fantastic line. Let me, let me find this. He goes, they used to call me the black Bruce banner. Why am I still down here? And pile driver, who's just like, also like bored and drunk and like wishes he wasn't here. There's something in pile driver. And they hate working for Fenris to be clear, but it. like, it's a paycheck. And he just responds, for the same reason they didn't call Banner the White Elliot Franklin. Mm-hmm. And then Thunderbolt says, what are you, woke now? <laughs> yeah, regular Malcolm Farrakhan. Yes. <laughs> it's like, because he calls himself <laughs> Malcolm Farrakhan. Tanahasi's having a fantastic He's time. He's having a lot of fun with this book. After Black Panther and his allies wreck Club Fenris, and they've got it really tied up, and they're extracting information on uh, Queen Divine Justice from the Christopher Priest run has been kidnapped. So they shake down Fenris. The Fenris twins throw the K-word around. Mm-hmm. They call them monkeys and say that they will put them back in their cages. And all of the black heroes turn to Thunderball. She's <laughs> like, what the fuck are you doing? And they're like, man? you work for these people? And he's really embarrassed. They go, that's your man's in them? And he goes, like, crestfallen, like, not able to look anyone in the eye. He goes, no, that is neither my man's nor them. <laughs> and then T'Challa has a conversation with him where he's, well, T'Challa first is like, okay, leave Thunderball here, take the rest away. And Piledriver's like, wow, racist much? Uh, which, is, which is good. But they have a moving scene where yeah. he talks to Thunderball about how he's familiar with his work and like he could be doing more than this. And he's like, yeah, the Black Bruce Banner. He's like, no, Elliot Franklin. Like they call us stuff like that because they can't conceive of us as our own people and people who can achieve. And yet it's a great, it's a great scene. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, I just want to read the one line that's really perfect, which is how they get out of the scene. T'Challa telling Thunderbolt, it is not too late to recover your own name. Yes. 
which you'll also see as a theme throughout Tanahasi. Throughout the book, yeah. Anyway, really fantastic comics, even though they're not X-Men comics. Great Storm stuff. So then Christina Strain has them pop up to get their shit wrecked by children again in Gen X volume two in 2017. I like what she does because I don't totally remember the names of these characters, the names of these X-Men children, but like she really, she like puts them in a caper with Quentin and like these two, like, I guess like, teenage x-men are just like impossibly horny for one another Mm -hmm. there's a real like will they or won't they right to it and like quentin is basically telling this guy like like if you like him do the damn thing yeah this is uh hindsight and morph hindsight and morph yes thank you but i've referred to them on this show several times as those two twinks so (laughs) you're not like completely crazy for taking a second i liked what she did morph at one point has to pretend to be Andreas. Mm-hmm. Christina Strange just writes the shit out of that. It's just like, she says something like, you do not have Andreas's musk. It's just... Andrea says that, to be clear. A- yeah. Andrea says that. Refers to, to, to her more. brother's it's, musk, which she would know musk. anywhere. It's, it's, just, it's really funny. Like, it's the story so does it all too. Yeah. And I think that's, that's that until Krakoa, right? Yeah, when they pop up in Marauders initially as Sebastian Shaw's Black Knights because he resurrects Shinobi and he's trying to manipulate Shinobi. And so he's like, look, it's your friends, the Fenris twins, because... And he's like, Dad... <laughs> Sebastian was not around for the Upstart he's Zero. He's not a very so... attentive well, he was Well, Shinobi had apparently killed him as part of the Upstarts game, so he wasn't really around for the Shinobi and Fenris fair. era. So I, I think that he didn't really understand that the other upstarts were not super keen on the Fenris twins. So what must he have thought of Shinobi? I know, right? That would have been a funny <laughs> plot to that would have been, yeah. to tease out. I do think that it feels to me, I haven't asked Jerry about this specifically, but I know that a lot of stuff got shuffled around with the COVID delays and the events that were happening on that. So I think that the Shinobi plot in Marauders just kind of ended up cut down somewhat, but I would have liked to see where that was going. There's a great scene also when Storm and Callisto do the Crucible, which is just really, really beautiful. But yeah, yeah. This first, is awesome. when Storm hasn't shown up right on time, the Fenris twins are like, if you need anybody to kill her, we'll do it. And Callisto's like, if those racists speak again... <laughs> Jerry gives Mask a really funny yes. moment there, too. Yeah. If Mask, again, like, Mask thinks you're garbage. Like, see our Callisto episode. Like, yeah, there's just a lot of bits like that that are really funny. And then you kind of actually get the ultimate realization of that in X Corp by T. Yeah. Howard and Alberta Fichet, which we were talking about at the beginning. In this story, Fenris are trying to appeal to Monet and Warren to get positions of power at X-Corp on Krakoa, and Monet refuses to work with Nazis. It's just not something she's willing to do. You get so many wonderful scenes of Monet as penance. Yes. Like, tell you, like, I can't wait to kill you. Yeah. We're not going to have you resurrect. We're just going to have you suffer... You know, X-Corp is really fantastic. Teenage really moves from strength to strength. I think X-Corp is really great. 
I think it's an unusual comic for this genre. And I would encourage people, if you bounced off it initially, to go back and read it as a five issue. It really, I think, does a lot of fascinating Krakoa world building stuff that people yes. had been asking for. Super rewards a reread. They end up picking Selene and Mastermind, who are, again, two of the nastiest. Disgusting people. Mastermind especially. They're interesting choices, too, because Mastermind's great sin is that he is a predator, a sexual predator, right? And then Selene is like the ultimate Claremont dominatrix. So if you're looking at Fenris and you're like... If you guys did this villaining thing successfully, you would be these two people. Yeah. Mastermind is, you know, while we are not going to absolve Gene's complicity, and we're, we're recording this before Kieran before Kieran addresses this. One shot comes out. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm so looking forward to. But I won't be reading that the day of because that's fucking Yom Kippur. It is Yom Kippur, which frankly, given that the Phoenix is Tifereth, is rude. Shout out to Al Ewing. Al Ewing. Shout out to Al Ewing. Pulled out the Kabbalah again this week and did a masterful job. But like Mastermind. No Mastermind, no Dark Phoenix. Right. No Dark Phoenix. The Debari are still alive. We're not trying to take away Gene's agency, but he also right. was a major contributing factor in Dark Phoenix and the genocide of Debari and all of that. And that guy can cook on Krakoa too. And Celine's killed millions and millions of people. And yeah, we're trying this amnesty thing. We are trying. We are trying to let people have a second chance and make something of themselves if they have vowed to be a part of society. And so Celine and Mastermind, they are people that we can talk to and that we can look at ways for them to become productive members of society. So Quentin Choir, Quentin and X-Force are security at the gala. This is at the Hellfire Gala. And he, like, sort of pins Fenris down. And Monet says, Quentin, drop the control. I want them to listen up of their own accord. We do not need to lower ourselves to doing deals with the likes of you. And Andreas says, yes, you're very proud to hate us in public, what your friends will see. Yeah. What will you say in private? What will you say in private when you need our money? The next panel is a close-up on Monet. Yeah, and this is perfect. She lets her finger one penance. penance Yeah, one penance claw. To show, and this is a really key element of this miniseries, that Monet has control over her penance form. It is not something like Warren that reflects being out of control or being enraged. To her, it is a focused anger that she is able to control and that she uses to great effect, like in this scene when she holds up that one claw and says, you misunderstand. I am morally opposed to you. I find you repulsive. But here's what should truly terrify you. I also find you and everything about your ways obsolete. Even the sharkiest, most bestial, most amoral part of me wants nothing to do with you. You would merely drag us down. You're used to doing business with humans, Fenris. They can use limited resources to control those beneath them. We don't have to choose between doing the right thing or the profitable thing. So if you want people you can throttle, you can go deal with them. And she motions over to Sarah St. John. A tremendous, tremendous villain displayed and introduced with such subtlety to the point where it really has to, you know, this is what, to go back to like the Val Cooper of it all. Oh, Sarah St. John is very Val Cooper energy for sure. Yeah. Sarah St. John, 
she is the respectable one. I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling on the name of the company, the human company. No, bless. She is working for the human competitor that is trying to figure out the Krakoan drugs and all of that. By the end of the story, she will become a member of Orcus, and I'm excited to see her turn up again at some point. She and the other mysterious blonde doctor lady who is running the U-Men now should have, like, a Val Cooper vibes party. Yeah. She's the respectable one, right? Mm-hmm. Here's the test, right? She is the one Monet feels compelled to deal with. Yes. Even though the object of the obsolescent speech is Fenris, it applies to her. Yes. But because of the nature of the enterprise that X-Corp is engaged in, you could view it as an element of Krakowin national power in terms of its economic power, but either way. It's public facing. It's not just for Krakoa. It is demonstrating a Krakoan way of doing business in this system. She feels she must deal with Sarah St. John. It's it's written in such a clever way because the human and mutant technology is constantly being stolen. Mm-hmm. There's this fantastic line I recently came about in the 90s after Bill Gates makes Windows the brand of his graphical interface. Steve Jobs is really mad at him for it. And he goes, you just stole this from Xerox. Mm -hmm. Gates allegedly riposts to him in a really delectable way and says like, we both lived in a neighborhood with a really rich neighbor named Xerox. You broke in to steal his TV and you found that I had already stolen it. And those are the most powerful corporations of the internet age. Yes, absolutely. Once again, Habsbaum's line about the invisible barrier of respectability. Yeah. Between Sarah St. John and Orcus. Orcus stands for the same shit in the final analysis that Fenris does. Right. But there's something different about how small Fenris are, how small their ambition is, how small the focus of their evil is. Celine says something really funny in issue five. Fenris consulting at this point, which I thought was a lovely touch. Yeah. <laughs> so the evil Dr. Cole of Noblesse shoots her at her with a machine gun and the bullets bounce off because Celine is indestructible. She goes, don't be stupid. That can't hurt me. I was just in my office trying to get some work done when I felt the whole base rock under my feet. Now, usually I like to mind my own impressive and massive business, but I heard two familiar voices. The cadence on this is perfect. The rhythm, the rhythm. Yeah. Andrea and Andreas Strucker. Let me be clear. I have been alive for a very long time. I have seen some terrible warlords, but the von Struckers and their Nazi ilk are truly some of the most repellent. They industrialized genocide. I understand you would find that aspirational, but they don't care about you. Listen, you can hear it for yourself. And she plays a broadcast of Andrea saying, Colin Sarah will die. Who cares? Those are the noblesse heads. Who are human. And Celine grabs him by the throat and lifts him up and says, You tried to choose the side of supremacy, but you didn't realize you were dead weight. Those Strucker fuckers don't hate being mutants. They love it because it makes them more powerful than you. But we don't need liars and betrayers like that. You, Galio, people know about you. Killer. Yes, you know that I am a killer. 
And yet, you provoke me anyway. We got a Connor Celine on this episode. This book is one of the best Celine stories ever. The characterization for her from start to finish in issues two through five is truly next level. But also, that was nothing but facts. Yes! What she's referring to is the earlier scene where the Fenris twins reveal their big plan. They're fighting with Monet and Warren. They're shooting at them. It's a big fight scene. And Andrea says, you idiots, you said it yourselves. Only mutants can handle this technology. You Krakoans think you're working together at something new. Ah! Because Warren's flechettes stab her. My brother and I have always known we were stronger together. Which I know, I know, the Hillary of it all, like, really took me out of that. (laughs) (laughs) But she goes, and smart enough to put ourselves first, bang, bang. She just wanted to build an empire and spawns of human companies too, you know, just like you and Xavier did. And then Andrea says, we just didn't want to share with the X-Corp. You made it very clear, not all mutants get along. We're happy to sell you to the highest bidder and fiddle for your burn. Monet's like, are they trying to kill themselves? And then Andreas says, I'm not afraid to die, woman. When it suits me, I am Krakoan. And that's the key. If you let them into your communities, if you give them any space, this is what they will do. They're telling you up front about this. We will rob from you, die by your side in this basis destruction, and come back by your side, fellow Krakoans. We'll sync to your IBG's exact energy signature and send all the info we need back to our base. We made sure we timed this before Cerebro's backup, so you won't remember a thing. But we won't forget we did this. As simple as leaving ourselves a note. And he's wearing a suicide vest. Yes, and Andrea says, But you'll forget. You too, Warren. And she walks up to Warren and leans onto him, flirting. The miracle of resurrection is imperfect, so none of us will remember a thing about what happened here. Cole and Sarah will die. Who cares? They're humans. Those of us who matter will come back. We'll be sure to tell the council if we changed our face. That is a critique that a lot of people leveled at Krakoa. And it was like, why aren't the books addressing this? And that addresses it pretty handily. I think the fact that the Strucker twins are so readily able to apply their white supremacist fascist worldview to Krakoan politics and say in the words of the Krakoan leaders things that back up their point should make us question what we feel and think about Krakoa. Now, are they perverting it? Yes, but it's what you were just saying. If you allow fascism into your home, it's like a goldfish. It adapts to its surroundings. Karl Popper, the philosopher, described the paradox of tolerance, which is precisely what Andrea and Andreas are demonstrating here. If the society tells itself that all views are equally valid, the marketplace of ideas will filter them out, the bad ones from the good ones, which is just an insane thing to believe and a perfect encapsulation of the capitalist conception of what a market is, concealing what the reality of a capitalist market is. If you allow space for people who are explicitly telling you that they will destroy your society, they will exploit it every opportunity that they get, and they will reach for its protections as a matter 
of convenient self-preservation and also trolling, mm -hmm. then it demands one of two responses. Either allowing that society to die. And what death means in this case is that the most vulnerable will be eaten first and you will have to accommodate those doing the eating as those elites will eventually, if they haven't already, make an alliance with the Fenrises of the world or you expel them and you give them no space. And that's what Celine tries to convey to Dr. Cole. She's like, you tried to side with these Nazi supremacists because you didn't realize that to them, you are nothing. Everyone thinks that they're the Ubermensch, right? Like, this is something you see time and time again. It's the, I never thought leopards would eat my face, says woman who voted for Leopards Eating Faces Party. The second that your common enemy is gone, the enemy becomes you, babe. You know, to go back to the way we were talking about this at the top of the episode, Apocalypse wishes to be Krakoan. Apocalypse wishes that Krakoa thrive. Fenris wishes to burn Krakoa down. It wishes to extract the resources and the wealth of Krakoa from both the island itself and those who produce it and use it toward the destruction of Krakoan mutant kind. These are not reconcilable differences. However, a political structure that seeks above all else to reconcile those differences will always accommodate that. Mm -hmm. And that has to be challenged. This is why I think it was Charles who let those fuckers onto the fucking island. Again, I think it was his idea, and I think that Eric gave the okay, and I think that that is a sin that Eric has to deal with, or Max, as he was calling yeah. himself at the end. We, we didn't even mention that he's dead, by the way. Uh, uh, how are you doing? I'm not, you know, um, we... <sighs> you know what, I don't want to put you this on This is a spot. long fucking... We can also, we cover this somewhere else. Obviously, I think, you know, we've established in several episodes of this podcast that as you are Madeline Pryor's defense attorney, right. I'm going to elbow out Exodus to be chief acolyte. <laughs> and that was a worthy end for however long the end will be. That was exquisite. I could never see him again and be fine with it. I mean, I would be sad because I love the character, but it threaded the needle all the way from Uncanny 150, so flawlessly, it's just kind of shocking. I mean, Al Ewing, I think, is the best of the game right now. And X-Men Red is a master at the height of his powers. If you're not reading it, you're crazy for that and you should check it out. It is a measure of my devotion to the Covenant that I am not going to the comic store on Wednesday for the new X-Men Red issue. Yeah, I gotta be real. I'm not that observant. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I have children I have to model behavior for. I love that for you and for them. <laughs> That's Fenris. That's Fenris. Bucky's got. We're going to get to the can questions I, I just, now. I, I just have like, before we, before we do that, I just have like, like really just awful notes to myself that I have to share. Sure. Like Fenris calls every team that Kate is on kikes of X. Fuck. Jesus Christ. All right, we can go to questions. For the listeners, that's not a word you can say. You can't say that, but we're going to. Um, we have an atonement 
really coming up very soon. So it's like tomorrow night. Yeah. Yeah. I, so yeah. Um <laughs> Quentin Choir just asking questions about Fenris. Why is Krakoa so afraid of free speech? <laughs> That's the only thing in that X Corp portrayal there that I kind of raised an eyebrow at. Like, is Quentin Choir so eager to attack Fenris? We just have to accept that Quentin Choir is a new character now. You know? Okay. It's right. just unfortunate, but it All is right. what it is. I feel like Quentin took a lot of fashion inspiration from Fenris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. And I um, at one point, like in the Quicksilver issue, where they start talking about like what they're going to do with what the alleged cure for the legacy virus is. Like their plan is just to be Martin Shkreli. Yes. They're going to take a life-saving medicine, allegedly. And like just severely jack the And price. gouge everyone for it, yeah. And I think it's important to note that Fenris's plan would be thwarted by a world in which healthcare is a human right and access to it guaranteed by the state. And only 25 years later, <laughs> after that comic came out, where, you know, here we are. Uh, anyway. Also, there's that wonderful, at one point in Girl School from Heck, it is our Romani character. Megan, yeah. The goddess Megan Braddock, who goes unbelievably swole and fucks up Fenris real badly. You can hear them say their whole, the nihilist Slobowski. <laughs> I think that more Romani characters should get to beat the shit out of Fenris. We haven't seen enough of that yet. The more the merrier. More Romani writers should get to write. Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's worth pointing out yes, when talking about X Corp that Teeny is Romani, and I think that having her characters address this issue is cool because it's not something that we see a lot. You industrialized genocide. Yeah, it's a very specific kind of crime, and even Celine, who eats for food, is like really. Even Mastermind, who has done terrible things to get what he wants, is like really. I'm not a Nazi. And there's something <laughs> like, it is again, like when the worst other people in the Marvel universe are like, mm, I don't want that. If the Krakoan project can weather amnesty for those people, but it can't weather amnesty for you, you are a special kind of evil. And that's not to suggest Nazis are a special kind of evil specifically, but this kind of fascist supremacist point of view, movement, whatever you want to call it, is special in its destructiveness to society. And the important thing to remember there is that this is an eternal struggle. It never goes away. This is going to be something that we deal with from the here on out. Yeah. Take it from two Jews on Yom Kippur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh... Right. Any questions on that? Take Stephen Adewell writes, Hi, Connor and Attackerman. Leaving aside the weirder aspects that make the Fenris twins fun to hate read, one of the reasons I find them interesting is that they combine Nazism and mutancy. For all the back and forth that Marvel's done about whether Hydra is a Nazi organization, the Fenris twins' father, Baron von Strucker, makes it very clear he continues to believe in Nazism and he views Hydra as the vehicle for restoring the Fourth Reich. However, unlike the Red Skull, who shares those beliefs and considers mutants to be untermenschen to be wiped out, Strucker enlists Dr. Zolo to genetically manipulate his twin children so they're born mutants, a significant line to cross given Nazism's emphasis on the purity of bloodlines, which again is why they're fucking each other, right? 
One, what does this tell us about Hydra? Does it have anti-mutant and pro-mutant factions? Does the pro-mutant faction see homo superior as an expression of their beliefs in supremacism? Or are they merely willing to make use of mutants and mutant powers as tools for Hydra's ends? How does this faction relate with the faction of Hydra that joined Orcus? So I don't think that this is a common opinion within Hydra. I think that Strucker, as many, many, many conservative people no matter how far right we're talking, thinks that there is one set of rules for everybody else and one set of rules for him and his family. If this is a weapon that they can employ, then they're going to employ it. I don't think that he's planning to go around telling all his friends, my kids have an X gene. He just said, this is a weapon, we will exploit it. And it completely tracks by the way with also having a policy of exterminating all the other mutants because your mutant children were perfectly created in a lab or whatever and are struckers and yada 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 and it's not you know, there's all kinds of justifications one could make for hydra having a general anti-mutant position there's also it makes fenris representative of a specific kind of person that is really loathsome the person from a marginalized group who allies themselves with white supremacy <laughs> like jared kushner's family experienced the show enough said i mean i was gonna say stephen miller the architect of the trump administration's immigration policies is jewish it adds that layer to the mutant metaphor they are mutant nazis and if the Nazis are opposed to mutants, which we have seen like through the Red Skull and other characters, but in the way that mutantum and Judaism are explicitly aligned in Claremont, in the way that Pietro's Romani heritage and his mutant identity are tied up in one another in terms of how he views authority and cops and whatnot that we talked about last week. These are things that exist in the world. So to have these mutant characters be like, but we're literal Nazis, it feels like a betrayal in a way that a regular Hydra character is just gross, but these two are grosser somehow. It's like, are they appropriating the X gene? No, they were born with it. There's just something really foul about it. First of all, hi, Stephen. Love you, dude. A true Captain America scholar we're in the presence of. But go back to Umberto Eco. The contradictions of fascism never get resolved because they're not the point. Right. They're incidental to the thing. The thing is domination. History is not written to the fascist in words and ideas that, when met with a point of absurdity or contradiction, have to be grappled with. History is written in violent action. That's what matters in the end. Fenris can contribute to that. They can find some way to reconcile it later, and they would view it as a sign of decadence and weakness that you would be searching for a way to either address the contradiction, find a path out of it, or something like that. They'll have their propaganda say whatever is necessary. I want to read the rest of his question because you're answering it. He says, two, what does this tell us about Andreas and Andrea? Since we know they share the Nazi beliefs of their father, do they see mutants as a people as the ultimate expression of the Ubermensch? Or do they not think of themselves as having a mutant identity and see their ex genes as purely instrumental, a means to enhance their own personal superiority? How do they reconcile their Nazi beliefs with the existence of Jewish mutants and mutants of color? Why do the Strucker twins not only move to Krakoa, but also join the leadership of the Hellfire Trading Company and seek to join X Corp only to turn on Krakoa the moment they're rebuffed? Here is the answer to those questions. Yeah. 
they do not think of themselves as having a mutant identity and think of their ex-genes as purely instrumental, except when it suits them to have mm -hmm. a mutant identity, in which case they will weaponize it and use it as a defense for why they can't be possibly wrong. How do they reconcile their Nazi beliefs with the existence of Jewish mutants and mutants of color? They think they're better mutants than mutants. Like yeah, it's, it's, it. it's, it's that simple. Like, oh, how do racist white gay people reckon with the existence of gay people of color? Often not well, let's be real. Like racism is something that can exist within any minority community. There are a lot of problems between white Jews and Jews of color at times. Like that's mm -hmm. something that happens. It's just a fact of life and... There is never a community in which a racist cannot justify himself or herself. That is just something that happens and that they do naturally because, again, the logic is not the point. The power that the framework grants you is the point. Why did the Strecker twins not only move to Krakoa but also join the Hellfire Trading Company and seek to join X-Corp only to turn on Krakoa the moment they were buffed? Because they thought they could get away with it. They thought they could move in, exploit the resources, and move on. And their plan to turn on Krakoa, they never intended to be discovered. They had this whole plan worked out where they were going to kill Monet and Warren and Trinary and everyone else in the building, all resurrect and have left memento-style notes for themselves, but... To all the world, nobody knows what happened. Oh, the humans attacked, but they're dead now, so I guess we handled it. They saw Krakoa giving them a loophole, and they took it. And they saw the gift of resurrection as something to exploit in of itself, rather than as a gift. They saw it as a tool, in part because these are characters who have been resurrected several times by their father pulling strings. Once you're as far gone as Fenris you're not going to be argued out of it. Right. You're not going to have a contradiction presented to you that you can't either shout away, beat away, or laugh away. They do what benefits them, and that's it. And anything else can be justified because they are better, they are stronger, they are more important, they are more pure, whatever they want to say they are, they are more than you. That's the only thing that matters to them. And so they will use the language of Krakoan independence when it suits them. And that is why they have to be cut out at the root. You cannot allow that to fester within your community because it will poison everything around it. Hunter Scribner writes, Dear Connor and the esteemed Mr. Ackerman, writer of the upcoming Waller vs. Wildstorm out in November from DC. So fucking pumped to read that. Thank you. My question concerns Fenris, everyone's favorite iteration of the Wonder Twins with a Nazi paint job. As a relatively clueless flat scan, I have no personal reading experience with the Starker Twins outside of Teeny Howard's recent X-Corp. Though what I've read on the Marvel Wiki is bonkers. Andrea shot Storm in the head once? Wild. Yes, in her second appearance. But I'll admit to finding them mostly a fun joke at the expense of bigots a la Mel Brooks's The Producers. I mentioned that earlier. I do think that that's similar to what Claremont was doing and certainly what Teeny, I think, is doing. Sorry to ramble. The question is this. What do you make of what the Strucker twins represent within the X-Men franchise as literal projects of eugenics? 
If my research hasn't led me astray, I believe Arnim Zola literally sewed the X gene into their DNA during IVF. Does this mean most mutants view them as frauds or artificial mutants like Mr. Sinister? Would Fenris counter that the prioritization of mutants with combat powers in the resurrection queue or Magneto's Our Species is the Future slogan is just a watered down version of their own forthright craving philosophy? I suppose that's a whole lot of questions. Sorry about that. Hoping to have the free time to join the Discord once my younger brother's wedding is finally done. But until then, make mine Cerebro Hunter Scribner. I mean, they absolutely would counter with that because what about ism yeah. is one of the first refuges of fascism is what I'm doing isn't that bad. What about when you do this, when the two things are not equivalent, right? As for whether people regard them as fake, I don't think most people know that fact about their origin. We just happen to know that as readers. But I also think that by sinister rules, they count. However, sinister only counts because, and this is another compromise with evil that Krakoa is making, they need something Sinister has. That's right. They can't, this doesn't make sense without Sinister. What Fenris doesn't realize is that they are not valuable that way. And that has sort of been their problem always because they were told their whole lives that they were valuable. And no one else seems to see them that way, but they can't quite get it through their heads. Hunter, welcome to the Discord in the future. A running theme throughout these books as they deal with Fenris, is that like even the worst mutants want fucking nothing, nothing to do with Fenris. So like there's no, I don't feel like you even have to get to the question of are they are really they real mutants? mutants? Right. Like th the community is basically saying like Jesus fucking Christ, not these people. Why do we have to do this? My feeling personally is like. And the mutant metaphor can never truly be one-to-one -one, in part because there can be stories where you can create a mutant through eugenics, right? So it's not analogous to an actual minority experience. That said, it correlates in a lot of ways that obviously are part of why this podcast exists. And that's a big part of why people love this franchise. One of those is like, are you born gay or do you become gay because of environmental factors or a mix of both or what? I don't care, really. It doesn't matter to me. And a gay person who feels they were born gay and a gay person who feels they became gay are both gay people to me, as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't really matter because you're gay. And my feeling is that whether or not the Fenris twins would have naturally been born with an X gene, they were born with an X gene. So they're mutants, whether their designer babies or not right and i think the story is more interesting if we consider them to be mutants their role in the metaphor is more interesting their role in critiquing krakoa through the stories in x corp is more interesting they're not faking it to get in they are mutants and if you are going to give amnesty to everyone in your minority group well what about the nazis and the answer is, all right, there have to be limits. You can't just let fascists into your house like this. I think you pick up on something that speaks very well of every writer that's dealt with Fenris, which is that the stories never glorify them. No. I haven't read a Fenris story to include everything that you say about Fabian and dealing with swordsmen. Even when swordsman is portrayed in a more sympathetic way, he's still pathetic. Yeah. Like they're never elevated. So the stories are never ever telling you that, like, hey, you know, this guy might be making some interesting around. You <laughs> right. know, like I think this does speak well of how metatextually the comics community, however much perhaps both introspection and then material work must be done 
to better enforce the boundaries of slippage that move the community into Fenris-like danger territory. The fact of the matter is that at least you are not seeing, as I think you have seen in pretty much every other medium, a treatment of characters like Fenris, Nazis, fascists, who get a moment where in various contexts, and this certainly includes journalism, where they are portrayed as anything other than the pathetic, destructive force that they are. Josh Halbachner writes, Dear Connor and esteemed fellow Second Coming fan Spencer, been eagerly looking forward to this episode ever since its mid-episode genesis over a year ago. In the time since, I read Spencer's excellent book, Reign of Terror, and it got me thinking about the influence the Strucker twins would have based specifically around how Krakoa chooses to deal with them. At the start of Krakoa, Charles and Eric make a decision to offer the most absolute possible mutant amnesty, not just creating a space for mutants who've done bad things who could benefit from a second chance, but also mutants like the Struckers who are animated by a fundamentally evil ideology that's a opposed to the very basis of the mutant nation, and you can reasonably expect will not change for the better. Of course, given the opportunity, they almost immediately exploit Krakoa's resources to enable a violent assault on the island. After this plays out, they're able to pretty trivially escape, and it's clear Krakoa isn't super invested in taking the time and energy to find them again, which means that some of the most odious mutant villains get pushed off on the rest of the world as a not-our-problem. Does it erode trust in the state when people think about how much rope Team Incest Rocket were given when everyone knew exactly what they were? How does treason interact with the loose framework of Krakoan laws, and what is the right way to treat people who will actively work against the mutant nation's interests from within this way? Do the Struckers complicate Krakoa's international relations if they try to change course and deal with them more decisively? Hope that wasn't too disjointed. Looking forward to your thoughts. Peace. Josh Quincognito from the Discord. So that's a lot of what we were just talking about. It's great. The only answer is to expel them. You crystallized a lot of that in a very concise way, whereas we took a long and winding road to get there. But the only answer is to expel them. There is no place for that, for people animated by hate, which is a great way of putting it. There is no place for that in a a community that's supposed to be productive. There is no restorative justice model that will help with these people. Certainly not in the short term. Like, people can be deprogrammed. There are people who have been de-radicalized, but, like, that's not happening with Fenris. They're not looking to be They're no. not looking to be anything but what they are. Exactly. I will accept a way back from someone willing to do the work for it. Right. This is not that. An important point that I think Josh makes that parallels our real world is that it indicts the Krakowin laws. Because in that three-law structure... You can be Fenris. Exactly. Fenris hasn't violated the laws of Krakoa. So you have to examine whether the laws of Krakoa are sufficient for dealing with the threat to Krakoa that Fenris is. Because when you let Fenris on Krakoa, other Krakoans suffer for that. Right. There's nothing that weighs that out. There's no neutrality that the state would be taking here, only an abdication. Someone suffers by their presence. Many more will suffer by their presence as you allow them to cook. It is about the question of tolerance and what you're willing to tolerate in the name of civility and all of that. It really is instructive in that way. I think that Krakoa isn't eager to get them back, but I would imagine that they are being tracked. I mean, I I can't imagine that they are just rampant on the loose. When we see that tied up is a matter of when somebody else has a story to tell with them. I think if X-Corp had gone on for 20 issues, we would have seen more of them, but it didn't. 
I feel like what's lurking behind a bunch of these questions together is basically like, should they have been in the pit with Sabretooth? Right. Not because they've necessarily violated the laws for the reasons that we've just talked about, but wouldn't that be, for lack of a better term, like the book to deal with that? Except that the thing that's different about them and Sabretooth, and this is what's essential, is that they will talk the talk. Sabretooth mm -hmm. wouldn't be civil. They asked him, will you behave and be polite? And he said no. And so they were like, well, then we can't have you here. But Fenris, it was like, well, do you promise to be good? And they were like, oh, yes. There's a great line also in that X-Corp issue where Andrea says to Monet, my favorite Krakoan law besides amnesty is that mutants are allowed to kill each other because <laughs> she's about to kill Monet. <laughs> right. And it's like... Well, yeah, that kind of sums up how someone would exploit these laws. This book and Way of X came out around the same time, and both of them were polarizing with readers. And I think that in part that's because they were books about questioning Krakoa and complicating the utopia that we had been happy to receive with some reservations. I mean, there's some creepy stuff about Krakoa from the jump, but... Specifically, these two books were about challenging Krakoa's system of governance. And in the lead up to Inferno and Immortal X-Men and whatever is to come, I think that it was important to explore the different ways the Krakoan state was failing its people by having this sort of cavalier attitude toward law. I mean, toward carcerality toward community. toward community toward all kinds of things and i think that it poses a lot of interesting questions what do you do with venerous if you don't believe in prison what do you do with venerous i also don't think that they would want to be part of Sabretooth's exiles right they wouldn't you know they would bounce that's why it's not yeah. a good place to put them because they wouldn't hang out and like i don't know it would be fun to see like i don't know necra and Sabretooth kill Fenris, but whatever. Like, that's just fan fiction. Yes, I mean, I would love to see Necra kick the shit out of Fenris. That would please me very much. But, you know, that's just a wish list now. Now we're just yeah. making a vision board. Graham Aggie writes, Dear Incredible Connor and Spectacular Spencer, salute to my fellow New York Jews. Since his last Cerebro appearance, I've binged all of Spencer's episodes numerous times, bought his book for my dad, bought another copy since the dog ate the first, and let's just say Thank we you. stan. I have had this episode marked on my calendar forever, and now that it's officially announced, I have a date to begin counting down to. Well, the day is here, Graham. With all my fanboying out of the way, my question is this. Were the Fenris twins at the Cal Capital on January 6th, or are they more chronically online talking heads for the anti-Krakoa crowd? Do they hang out with the I'm not anti-mutant, I follow the Fenris twins crowd? Much love to you two. Cannot wait for Waller vs. Wildstorm to drop. Fidel Cashflow in the Discord. Insert Westchester reference yeah. here. So, no, that's exactly what Fenris I'm saying. Fenris was at the hotel. Fenris right. was at the hotel right. with Eastman and Giuliani. Right. They were into it, but they were not on the ground. That's not what they They're did. They're not goons. No. They're not goons. The bigger thing is that the question you're identifying there of like, I'm not blankist, I follow so-and-so. That's exactly what Fenris are. And that's why the fact that they're mutants matters and is important in the story and why it's fascinating to me. Because there are a lot of internet talking heads we could name who are members of various marginalized communities who have made it their stock in trade to appeal to supremacists of all stripes and to be the good one, and to be a token like that. So there are, of course, mutants who would do that. And Fenris are them. Gyric at Orcus would be like, 
how could anyone say that we're an anti-mutant organization? Fenris we work here. Andrea and Andreas right here. And They're Judas mutants. Traveler. I mean, we've got mutants here. Judas Traveler. <laughs> Judas Traveler. <laughs> I'm just always going to think of Blues Traveler. So like Judas Traveler should be like pulling out a harmonica. I just think you know? it is so funny that Steve is so addicted to these obscure polls that UncannyXmen.net had to release a spotlight on Judas Traveler. <laughs> Can you imagine being the UncannyXmen.net people and just being like Judas from the Clone Saga and cracking open the old Clone Saga from Spider-Man's 90s of and being like, let's figure out who the fuck this guy is. You say that like the moment he crosses a Zaladane line. There I'm be not fucked. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> well, we just reached 1 million downloads as of last episode. Wow. Look what you did. Thanks, Spencer. It's crazy. I'm very, very grateful. New York Times profiled Entertainment <laughs> Weekly best podcast of 2021. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy to me, honestly. But 1 million crack homes. Well, some of those people have downloaded multiple times, to be fair. Uh, it's not yeah. one million individual people, but I am starting to kind of believe that maybe the show is good and that I'm good at this, which is fun to like believe that is cool. I'm not, that's not like false humility. It's, this is a very scary thing to do every week to put yourself out there like this. And uh, it's cool to see that people like it. But the big thing I, I was going to say is I vowed that when we crossed one million downloads, I would do the Black Womb cast, which is not going to be a regular episode of Sura, but I am going to do a Patreon episode where I explain the Black Womb project and trace that whole fucking storyline through all of those, I do not like, understand 50 this. books. Yeah, so you will once I am <laughs> through with it. It's going to be a new series on the Patreon I'm doing called Worrying About It, where we... <laughs> You're going to be begging to do a Judas Traveler episode. But that's what I'm saying. I was like, I was like, <laughs> at this point, Judas Traveler would be less onerous than trying to explain some of the x-men storylines that are, are super crazy so that's something i'm going to be doing on the patreon sometimes i'm going to do one on the black womb project i'm going to do probably like a third summer's brother thing at some point just like sort of digging into the weird twistiest turniest storylines the 12 my god Oof. oh well that's now I'm committing, I guess, because I said it on the air. So You still have the option of cutting this. I do, so but that would be the coward's move. And I, Man. unlike Wolfgang von Strucker, am not a coward. Christopher Kano writes, Hello, Connor and the always delightful Mr. Spencer Ackerman. Relatively recent but fervent listener of the pod. Not really a deep question, but which writer-producer on The Gifted was so zooted as to make Fenris of all characters into fucking YA protagonists? We hadn't mentioned this yet. Oh, so were I they didn't watch the show. Was the show... What, they, what, what, what hold, the fuck was this? Were they trying to draw in Game of Thrones fans, or was it a self-report? Of course, the short-lived show... <laughs> <laughs> Of course, the short-lived shows. Oh, we're talking about that other media would give these fuckers their due. Of course, the short-lived show's standout was Emma Dumont's truly bad bitch turn as Polaris. But imagine the handful of Andy and Lauren Strucker stands diving into comic books to get more of their favorite brother-sister duo, only to find Nazi Lannister twins. Hilarious. Thank you both for the amazing work you do, Connor. This pod's a godsend. Your thoughtful, comprehensive, and hilarious dives into these characters with your amazing guests have not just further enlightened me to experiences and perspectives outside my own, but have also inspired ideas for how to incorporate these comics into my classroom to do the same for my students. Spencer, your meditation on Magneto and the Sonder Commander brought me to tears and articulated so many feelings of love and awe I have for that character. I want you to know I'm now working on incorporating Magneto Testament into my curriculum, and I also can't not hear Senator Sanders' voice when I read Max's dialogue. <laughs> Lots of love. Chris, 
That's all very sweet, Chris. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It is fully demented that there was a TV show, a Fox X-Men TV show, centered on teenage versions of Fenris fleeing oppression with their parents. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. It turns out, I mean, it, it, they are the Strucker family, and you're like, Struckers? And, like, if you know, you know. So that they never hit it, and, like, the twins can only use their mutant powers if they hold hands and, like, etc. It turns out that Fenris were their grandparents? Like, the show recasts Fenris as World War II-era villains. So they're the, they're, they're the Baron Von Strucker, basically. Exactly, and, right. like... I think it's just implied like, and Andreas was your grandfather, but I'm like, yeah, and Andrea was your grandmother. Don't, we can't say that on <laughs> on network television, but we all get what we're saying here. It's a bizarre little show. They had thousands of characters to choose from. I think that in part it's because they wanted to do a bit of a storyline about the conflicted loyalties of the dad and like yada, yada, yada. But I didn't watch most of this show, so I can't really opine on it in detail. I just do remember thinking when it was announced that it was the most insane adaptation idea I'd ever heard. That Polaris's resistance protects the Strucker twins who are fleeing from Sentinels. I was like, what is this? Is Polaris Magneto's daughter? On yes. The Whoa. And he's dead. So it's Wait, like so, so 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 Fred from Angel and she's their mom. Vampire Bill. Vampire Bill. Struckers. Vampire Bill is like Fenris's son, who is not a Nazi as far as we know, but he like works with the government. He's secretly a mutant, and then the kids are mutants. And she is his human wife, which like what a waste of Amy Acker. I'm sure she had a great time, but like as the human mom. Hopefully, she got paid. In a show about the X-Men, there are so many X-Men characters that, like, there are so many Claremont dames that Amy Acker would play the ever-living shit out of. Oh, totally. Like, come on. But, you know, what are you going to do? Is the show worth watching? Should I bother? Uh, I haven't watched you're, most you're, of you're, it. You're a Polaris guy. I haven't watched most of it. Polaris was cool in it. They leaned into, like, the bipolar disorder interpretation of the character, which I thought was cool. She has a relationship with a character who was clearly supposed to be Sunspot, but is legally distinct because of the New Mutants movie that was in development hell. <laughs> and Thunderbird's in it. Which Thun? Like Thunderbird Sr. Johnny or Johnny, not Jimmy. John, not Jimmy. And then Blink is in it, but she's Asian because it was before people knew that Blink was supposed to be black and she'd already been Asian in Days of Future Past, so... That's just one of those characters that's forever going to be really complicated, but this is not a Blink episode. It's Jimmy Chung, who's always great, so that was fun. I But I really didn't see too much of it. Uh, the girl from Scream Queens played the Stepford Cuckoos, which was fun. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Skylar Samuels, I think her name is. Boo Boo Kitty from Empire plays the white queen of the Hellfire Club. There's a lot going on in this, but they call it, like, the inner circle. It's very, like, Fox Kids cartoon about that. <clears throat> they don't say Hellfire Club. Anyway... Weird show. I don't know that I would recommend watching it, but to answer your question, it did turn out that the Fenris twins were the horrible secret legacy of their family, which made more sense than are these a heroic... They were legacy heroes of the Fenris twins, which is like DC <laughs> oh style. And it was like the Fenris twins were like Justice Society era, and <laughs> these <laughs> twins were like Bronze Age. So it was, it was crazy. Sorry to any fans of that show that we made it four hours before we even yeah, thought sorry. about talking about mm, it. My bad. 
I'm going to read two questions that are related. They're about potential future adaptations of these characters. Jack Hoda writes, Dear Connor and Spencer, I'm so excited to submit a question for a Spencer episode. The episodes in Hank, Magneto, and Callisto in particular are among my favorites. Since I'm still fairly new to the comics and very early in my back reading, I don't have much experience with Fenris apart from the fact that they are literal Nazis. However, I did enjoy what I watched of the show The Gifted. What are your thoughts about the choice to make Fenris the protagonist of that show? We just covered that. Further, what are your thoughts on an MCU adaptation of these characters? We've gotten a lot of Hydra and Nazism in the MCU so far, so I could see in whatever plan they have to introduce mutants, maybe some flashback stories with Fenris as villains during the Captain America era. I'm a fan of taking the route that mutants have always been there in the MCU. Maybe a Magneto versus Fenris story in which they encounter some kind of temporal anomaly that brings them all to the present day, which would allow us to have the characters and keep Magneto's necessary Holocaust origin. Anyway, I'm so looking forward to your discussion this week. Struber was my lifeline during my last semester of grad school thesis defense and job search so i'm happy to finally have the capacity to submit questions maybe i'll get active on the discord next we absolutely should you should next question and this is gonna make spencer laugh Michael Mamano Scheidler writes, Hello, Connor and Spencer. I only learned about the pod earlier this year and have been obsessed with it, barreling through episode after episode and laughing my ass off. Thank you, Connor, for rounding out my expertise, making even episodes on characters I've never particularly cared for as hilarious as they are informative. And a huge thank you to Spencer for sparking my lifelong love of the X-Men by lending me his From the Ashes trade paperback in leftist summer camp when we were 10. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy shit. And patiently devoting ah. several afternoons to explaining the lore to a newly converted ex-junkie. Whoa. Hearing Spencer guest on the podcast is always a treat because the two of you are like bookends to my X-Men education. My question is this, given Baron Von Strucker's MCU demise in Age of Ultron, where his twin children seem to be subbed out for a different set of twins, the Maximoffs, do Fenris have a place in the MCU? Do you think it would be better for there to be some kind of allusion to Papa Strucker's other twins, or to just let it lie? Should Fenris have beef with Wanda? Would such a confrontation get you to finally root for Wanda? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the Fenris twins could be linked to Zemo as they were in the comics, but given that the MCU interpretation of Zemo is more of a morally gray anti-hero than a straight up black hat, would he even groove with Fenris and their Nazi nonsense? Love the pod, getting my husband into it, hearing Candy Southern's that's just one hour was all it took to get him on board. Thank you <laughs> and make mine cerebro. Sincerely, Michael Mamano Scheidler. P.S. I grew up in Rockland County just across the Hudson from you, Connor, and I have family from every borough. I just have to know, where does the rather come from? <laughs> I have wondered this myself. So, great question. My father says rather because he's from Boston, but my mother says rather, which is more New England-y, but she's from the Upper West Side. So I don't know. But I asked them when I read this question, I went downstairs and was like, because I'm visiting right now because I'm, I'm in New York for New York Comic Con. And I was like, hey, um, if you would prefer to do something else and it's a word that is father, but with an R at the beginning, how would you say that? And my dad went rather and my mom went rather. And so I was like, well, there you go. That's the answer. I don't know what to tell you. I'm also one of those people who pronounces Mary, Mary, and Mary as three very different words with different syllables in them. And I think that that's just because my mother was like very into proper diction. So I get it from my mama. I would rather say rather because I can't make it myself- It sounds fancier. It's more just- And I just can't make myself say rather. It, does, it feels weird coming out of my mouth because it's just not how I naturally say it. So, you know, that is what it is. But anyway, to go back, first of all, such a super cute story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Spencer, do you remember this? It seemed to I, spark I, a I, memory. 
Let me just say in the spirit of the days of awe and in the imminent Yom Kippur, um, Michael, I was an asshole to you as a dumb <laughs> kid in camp, and I'm very sorry, and I'm happy that not only... I'm happy that you clearly don't hold it against me. <laughs> so I, you know, in the spirit um, of the, the season that we're in, I would be remiss and I would have to account for it to God um, if I didn't extend to you um, an apology that's long overdue. So I apologize for being an asshole child to you. Great questions both. Well, that's Yom Kippur. And do with it as you as you will. You're under no obligation to forgive me. Sounds like I, he views that seems like very it. differently from how you did, but self-recrimination is also very Jewish. So yeah, there's... this is yeah. <laughs> this is what we are literally called upon to do right now. And so, that's in... what this week is about. Is like, yeah. mm, who do I feel like I've wronged? What can I do to be a better person in the future? So now you have an apology on Cerebro. Yes, and this is also why talking about Krico and Amnesty is interesting to me because I am more interested. In, I've said this many times in the podcast, like, can you redeem Fenris? No. Can you redeem Selene or Mastermind or Apocalypse? Absolutely not. Are Selene and Mastermind and Apocalypse people who could be better? It seems yes. And Fenris are not. Yeah. And that's a key distinction in terms of how you feel people should be treated and what you feel should be afforded people in terms of grace. I would say in terms of the adaptation question. Yeah. I can definitely live without them ever appearing. If they have to appear, I would want them to show up as buffoons. Yes. Total clown shows. Not as a way of saying don't take what they believe seriously, that it's not a genuine threat, but that these are absolute clowns. Yes. As like Red Skull's comedy henchmen, they would be fun. You know what I mean? Like these complete idiots. Here's my thing. I don't think a Disney version of Fenris is worth doing. That's not to insult anyone at the Floating Space Palace Disneyopolis who may be listening to this. It's more that those movies are family-friendly. They are designed that way. And if Fenris can't be fucking, I don't really think Fenris is funny enough. I think the incest is really key to their appeal. Crazy sentence, I know. But it is a layer of over-the-top magnification of their grossness that I think is so essential to who the characters are. And so in movies that are pretty sexless overall, I'm just not sure they would make sense. However, there's got to be two Culkins who could be Fenris. <laughs> are there girl Culkins who act? I have no idea. I just figure it's a large family by law of averages. This is not a Culkin family podcast. I also... I would not want real siblings to play Fenris. I totally would. I mean, you know what? They'd have to really commit. Yeah, they sure would. And they would have to really not be on social media because <laughs> it's true. that's just a role you don't really... You don't want to be typecast? As an incest Nazi, right. I just think that if they can't be as disgusting as they are in the comic, there's not as much of a reason to use them. Now, if like... A slightly more adult Disney Plus show used them. That would be different. I just don't know about having them in like a big blockbuster Disney film. That just seems unlikely to me. Yeah. At least in a way that would be satisfying <laughs> as a fan of these characters as villains. 
we can live without seeing these guys. This yeah, is, I also the, just the, the world's gonna turn. I don't really need the discourse that would result from like MCU Fenris. I just don't. I am on Twitter less and less and less, and that would probably be what gets me to finally throw my phone into the sea. So, like, perhaps best that we just not open that Pandora's box. Adam from Australia writes, Hi, Connor and Spencer. Big fan of the podcast, and especially the Magneto and Callisto episodes. The two of you always bring new ways for me to look at characters I love and Xavier. That's good. <laughs> well done. I hadn't thought of Callisto as a third or fourth vision for Mutant Society. Anyway, I'm writing because I saw you were going to discuss a couple of characters that have always had an awkward place in my imagination. I'm sure the two of you will get and answer a lot of insightful and useful questions about the politics of the characters and how they will affect Krakoan society and their political standing in the world. Instead, I want to hear about what you think of Andreas's time in the Thunderbolts when he had a sword whose handle was wrapped in leather made from his deceased sister so that he could use their shared powers. <laughs> how do you think Andrea reacted to learning about the sword? Also, do you think they still have it? Anyway, thank you for reading... <laughs> <laughs> anyway thank you for reading this regardless of whether it makes it to the podcast you do great work and i enjoy listening every time there's a new release and also re-listening on occasion thanks adam thank you adam thanks. thank you for the idea of the fenris twins keeping the sword which is so gross that i am now compelled not the sword the hilt yep here's the logical answer norman osborne threw that sword off a mountain so probably not, but I would like to think that they somehow have it and that they're very weird about it. And that like she as like punishment for him ever doing that, like forces him to unwrap and rewrap it like 50 times before bed or something <laughs> like I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have some weird kinky thing going on with that. Definitely sword. something kinky about it. Yeah. Oof. Dave Katzen writes. <laughs> <laughs> That ugh feeling leads us into our next question. <laughs> Dave Katzen writes, Hello, Connor and Honored Spencer. Why do Andrea and Andreas Strucker exist? Granted, they make slightly more sense in a post-Thirsty and Jamie Lannister world, but in 1985, who was this for? Who was asking for young, hot incest Nazis? Was Chris Claremont okay? Was he going through something at the time? Granted, in a post-MAGA Proud Boys QAnon world, I understand the narrative value of having younger and very punchable Nazis around. It's a social reality and one we'd probably been collectively obfuscating for far too long, prior to the past several years. That said, are they even in the right genre? Skinning your dead sister slash lover to make a cane feels like something out of horror or suspense narratives. And in general, as Baron Strucker's kids, you think they make more sense in espionage or political thrillers. Sure, other characters have those elements in their narratives, but they also have some element of charm, bombast, and spectacle, or nuance that helps enmesh them into the world of the X-Men. The Strucker twins fail on most of those counts. How is it here in the X-Line that these two have found a niche? Well, they were created in the X-Line. They were created specifically to complicate the mutant issue that Claremont was exploring in the 80s. And I think they have a lot of bombast. Like, there's a lot of fun factor to these characters. That's why we've been laughing for hours talking about a pair of Nazis who fuck each other. Because it's funny. They're funny. They do funny shit. When they go blasting off again like Team Rocket, it's invariably funny. When the Acme box blows up in their face, I LOL. Like, it's always good. It always works. It always gets a laugh out of me. And I find them really compelling as that character. These characters who are just so fucking awful that we can do almost anything to them and think it's very, very funny. 
I don't like to speculate about like the writer's intentions too much, but we discussed at the beginning of the episode who this was for or where this came from. This is an old, old trope, the idea of the evil twins who are a little too close. And then the Nazi exploitation genre, the Nazi sexploitation genre specifically, was a huge pop cultural phenomenon in the late 70s. So it makes a lot of sense that Chris Claremont writing Pulp Fiction in the 1980s would incorporate that in the same way that he incorporated lots of other B-movie stuff, sci-fi fantasy stuff, things that were circulating in pop culture at the time. And I do think that, you know, I can't speak for him, but I think there is a little bit of that Tom of Finland style fascination with the fascist aesthetic. Just saying, what does this aesthetic mean? What is it used to veil? What are these people really about? I think that what's really cool about Claremont's use of Fenris, as we said a couple times, is that while he makes them very sleek and aesthetic and glamorous in that way that a lot of fascist movements are, he never treats them as aspirational or sexy. Like, even when they're posed in porny ways, you're like, please stop, because that's your sister. It's like a not, like, no one is, no one is having a good time when Fenris is around, except for the reader who might be laughing like, oh my god. Like, that's the thing. And so they've always been relevant in that sense. They are certainly very useful to have now in a time when open fascist movements are on the rise in America and Europe and just about everywhere. So, you know, it's good that we have them in that sense. But the question about the genre, I think, is interesting in that, as I said earlier also, they are part of a shift in tone that heralds the transition from early Claremont to late Claremont. The girls' school from heck. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps not that late Claremont. I mean, the difference between the 70s X-Men or even the early 80s X-Men and the X-Men from Mutant Massacre onward, where horror is part of the story, where a lot of suspense and thriller stuff is woven into the story, where a lot of really adult themes are woven throughout the story, not just sexual ones or fetishistic ones, but also really adult political and moral themes that were not extremely common to superhero comics in previous decades. There's a reason that this book reshaped the genre and stretched enormously the boundaries of what people thought it could do. And one of those is that it incorporated things like these characters who, yeah, are certainly out of place. I mean, when they pop up in that Cloak and Dagger story as like part of a squad of D-list Avengers villains... It's like, you hired Fenris? Like, anytime a villain hires Fenris, I'm like, Fenris? Really? It always has a certain air of, do you know who they are? Like, do you know their deal? Hyro, who's dying. Yeah. Is basically like, you hired Fenris? Side of right. this plane? Can you go stand like, over there on that here. side of the helicarrier? You know? So I think that that's interesting. And I'm glad that they stick out kind of like a sore thumb in that way because it's what makes them a bracing set of characters to encounter. 
Arcane Anarchist writes, Hello, Connor and guests. Do you think Fenris do a good job countering the problem a lot of fiction has with making Nazis seem too cool? A lot of the time, fictional portrayals of Nazis can play into the way fascists like to be perceived as cool, scary badasses. Whereas from when I've read of Fenris, which I'll admit is somewhat limited, they come off as gross and weird and not at all cool, while still feeling threatening and deeply evil. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this from the incredible podcast, Best Witches, Arcane Anarchist on the Discord. You nailed it. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's that's it. why these characters are great. Because they always are on the right side of that divide. This is how you want to do Nazi representation. <laughs> but like truly, because it's important to not ignore that this is a thing yes. that exists. So you have to represent it in your fiction, but this is how you do it. It doesn't, like, I want to stress also, because Spencer stressed this a couple of times, but it's important. It never treats what they believe as a joke, and it never treats their conviction yes. about what they believe as a joke, and it never treats them as something that's not a threat. They are just laughable and pathetic the entire time. It's Charlie Chaplin making fun of Hitler. Yeah. Also, Romani is Charlie Chaplin. Oh, I didn't know Much like Megan. Yeah. Romani Shaw. So Megan is in a grand tradition there when she's mocking Fenris and Girls' School from Hack. Yeah, you're not going to... A fascist who would read Fenris is going to be mad. Well, that's the thing is like, right. You know, this is the thing that's always so fascinating about right wing comics fandom, because anybody who looks at Marvel comics right now is like, oh, my God, or DC comics or whoever. And is like, oh, my God, comics got woke or whatever. It's like when people call the X-Men social justice warriors, Joyce, I'm like, yeah, that's what the comic's about. Imagine devoting your life to something and misconstruing it. So the entire hard. meaning of it. It's wild to me. Yeah. Like if any of those people saw a Chris Claremont comic from the 80s about Fenris, they might be surprised by how much this genre has mocked their worldview from its inception, obviously, but really strenuously in this stuff. The harder case from the perspective of that question is Quentin Quire. I agree. And that's that on that. Yeah, we don't have to get into that too much today. This is not a Quentin Quire podcast, thank God. And right now, out in Earth 616, he's been erased from all existence for a few months, and God willing, he'll be gone for a while longer. <laughs> <laughs> Wilson Hayworth writes, Hello, Connor, esteemed Spencer. I'm looking forward to y'all talking about these atrocious 1% incest Nazis. I was wondering if you have any feelings about the decline of explicitly Nazi villains. This may just be my perception, but it seems like there's a hesitation in superheroic fiction recently. The one that comes first to mind is the odd distancing that the Marvel movies have done occasionally between Hydra and the Nazis. I understand that using real-life atrocities and hate groups can go really badly if not handled well, but I was wondering if you two had any feelings on the topic yourselves. Personally, I think having heroes that stand up against real-world bigotry and fascism is amazing, but I can see where other folks could feel that it trivializes real issues. Thanks for the show, Wilson. We're with you. Bottom line. Mm -hmm. I do think that people have shied away from making it explicit because they're coming at it from a very different perspective than the writers in the 60s and 70s and 80s who were often Jewish people very temporally close to the Holocaust. Like, it was recent history. And so I think there is an idea that nazi villains in the sense of like literal nazis are kind of passe or are not and, and what's becoming more obvious to everyone now is that that isn't really true right but again it's a civility thing people liked to believe that nazis were gone and that when they would often be portrayed in popular media they would be portrayed as monsters not your neighbor i also think just to be a vulgar materialist about this for a second Comics today, vice the 70s, 
are just in an entirely different material circumstance where these are basically published by mega corporations. Right. Those corporations have different interests. Right. I mean, I don't think that any of those interests are like pro-Nazi interests, but... No, but just that like it exercises a leaden weight amongst creators about what they can and can't tackle and address and how. Things like that are just going to now need the approval of a lot more people than they did back in the day. And we are in a time when people creating pop culture are in general, I think, very risk averse because it is so easy to be terrorized by people who don't like your artwork. And it's very easy for companies to get tons of blowback if they publish something that people don't like. So I just think that there's a lot of risk aversion and avoiding explicit Nazis is part of that. That said, Marvel's been more explicit about the Hydra-Nazi connection recently. I think they took that note to some extent, and it's not like they're gone. So I think it's good that we get stuff like Export, where the distinction between bigots and regular supervillains is underlined, because it is a real-world concern that I think matters. Robert Carroll writes, Hi, Connor. I started listening to the podcast a few months ago due to the animatics about Celine's social media accounts and then started listening. I love the mix of irreverence and intellectualism in the show, as well as the enjoyment of more offbeat and flawed characters. Where else could I hear about Banshee's approach to Irish nationalism and also whether Farrell is distracted by Cyclops' eye beams? So good. Since I just reread a big chunk of Thunderbolts and the Citizen V tie-in, I had a question about Zemo and Fenris. Well, this is not a Baron Zemo podcast, so we'll see. In Nisia is a Citizen V miniseries, it's suggested Helmut Zemo and the Strucker siblings spent time together growing up, and clearly their fathers were both well acquainted. Zemo's supervillain CV is impressive, and he even ascended to omniscience at one point. Meanwhile, Andreas has been taken out by D-listers like Jack Flag and Steel Spider. Heck, Zemo even had Andreas mind-controlled into being a hero at one point. Why do you think Fenris seemed to be such flops, and Zemo is such a substantial threat? OG Nazi versus, you know, the... the... No, but Zemo's the son of, too. Like they're, oh, really? Okay. This well, is Zemo, too. I don't know. That. This is not a Baron Zemo podcast again. Here's the real answer. This is why I don't like Baron Zemo and I like Fenris as characters. I think that Baron Zemo... That's not to say he's not a good villain. I just, like... I, my barrier to entry with Thunderbolts has always been the Baron Zemo of it all. It's always been a little hard for me to push past that. I think Thunderbolts is a great comic, but I'm always going to be a little bit like, hmm? I mean, I do like that the main heroine on the team, Songbird, is Jewish, and it's just always kind of like, why is Baron Zemo here is sort of her vibe. She, like, pretends to fall in love with him at one point, but it's, like, all to manipulate him to maybe kill him. I forget. I haven't read that in a long time. I think it's because of different approaches by writers. Baron Zemo was created to be a scary contemporary antagonist for Steve Rogers. The Fenris twins were not created to be impressive characters. They were created to be characters Storm could embarrass. They were characters who were created to flop at Magneto's trial as a demonstration of the inefficacy of fascism. They think of themselves as the protagonists of history. Right. And we get, you know, we get pie in the face after pie in the face after pie in the face, telling them that these guys aren't going to be remembered at all. 
Friedrich Yilkander writes, Dear Connor and Mr. Ackerman, I've really been looking forward to this episode. The ones you've done together before are some of my absolute favorites of Cerebro. And thank you, Connor, for reading my question for the Magma episode and for doing the Swedish accent. It was much appreciated, but please don't do it again. Winky face. He did ask last time and I said, I don't think I can do this very well. My question to you is not really about Fenris, but it involves hate crime and murder, two things the Struckers are into, so here it goes. Why do you think we haven't seen the resurrection of Mark and Jill, the two siblings who were brutally murdered in the first pages of God Loves, Man Kills? You'd think they would be first in line, and that Eric in particular would push for their resurrection. With the Wanda waiting room now, there's no practical reason why they can't be resurrected. So why haven't we seen it? Could it be that the significance of God Loves, Man Kills would be diminished if they were brought back? Or are writers just afraid to tackle it since the emotional charge in their return scene is so easy to get wrong? And if they're brought back, how do you see their lives in Krakoa? And who do you think should foster them and take care of them? Magneto when he comes back. Thanks again for your amazing work with your show. Listening to it is like stepping into this pocket dimension where people get me and speak my language in ways most people around me in real life don't. Love, Friedrich. And snicked on the bird app. I think this is for the same reason that we haven't seen Larry Bodine. Those are two of Claremont's most impactful stories. And I think that out of respect for them, they're being left somewhat untouched. Giving those characters a happy ending feels sort of contra to the spirit of both those stories. That said, There's no reason why they couldn't have been resurrected. So I think that if that's something you want to have in your head canon, it's something that's absolutely worth having. Now that Krakoan resurrection is known to the general public, I would hope that they would be sent back to their parents rather than being fostered by strangers. But I think that the big thing is for the same reason that Magneto cannot resurrect Anya Lenzio. These characters represent victims of real world shit and there would be something kind of glib about having them just pop out of an egg you know i don't know if i agree and that's why i'm interested in your take and listen maybe i'm i'm like trying to noodle out how i feel about it while talking about it because yeah it's a great question great because i'm pro us resurrecting the legacy virus victims right and that's real world shit allegorically so i legit cried when vita in just like almost a throwaway panel in new mutants referred to some of the kids on krakoa as being like well we died in, we, we died, died on, on genosha. genosha right and that no less than this is a fictionalization yeah entry point mirror for real world atrocities and i i don't think we have any problem with that we found it i, I certainly found it no i did moving. too i, I I'm, I'm trying to i think I don't know how I feel, actually. I I think that it would... Here's, I guess, the answer. Do those kids deserve to be resurrected and living their best lives in Krakoa? Absolutely. So, you know what? Maybe it would be good to show it. I just think if I were the person writing this story, especially as a white person, I would feel very nervous about messing with that. Because, like, if you go back and listen to Victor Laval talking about reading God Loves, Man Kills as a Black fan in the 80s, like, that story just was really impactful for a lot of people. And I would say that if someone was going to tell that story, I would want it to be someone with that depth of feeling about that story. Yeah, I think, like, there's going to be, because these are lynched Black children. Yeah, like, that's, I think, for people who aren't familiar with God Loves, Man Kills, that is the key here, yeah. 
I think that it's also going to be, in the original sense, as, as Connor mentioned from, from the 90s, problematic if they are fostered and fostered by white people. However, that said, if the idea is that you want to treat the metaphor of it in the foreground, and you've decided that you have to accordingly have them on Krakoa in some form of family, if they're not going to be part of, I think one option would be to do it as like the New Mutants found family. Sure. That Vita introduced. And another option would be when he comes back, Magneto. Hope Springs Eternal, Spencer. I mean, listen, they're IP. They always come back. They're IP. But let's not anticipate that because it's such a good story that I think we should let him rest for a while. It's what he wants. And I'm more interested, quite honestly, in seeing what other characters think about him in his absence. But I'm someone who thinks that they should have killed off him and Xavier like decades ago and let them be symbols. Because to me, that's somewhat more interesting. Xavier in space like Poochie. They had so many moments. They had so many 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 moments. Well, I mean, like new X-Men really shuffled them both off the page. And then it was like, nope, never mind. Go see the Magneto and Xavier episodes. For that. Yeah, we go in, we go, we go deep on all of that. Trevor Gardemal writes, "Who wins on the newlywed game, Fenris or Ultimate Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver? Who has the best incest relationship?" Best Trevor. Oh, did they do that in the Ultimate Universe? Oh yeah, did you not know that? I don't that? know anything about that. Oh, oh no, no, in Ultimate Universe, Juan and Pietro are fully <gasps> a couple who are fucking. Oh, why would you do that? I got to admit, at the time, I thought it was really fucking funny. Okay, now that I know this. They win the newlywed game because they actually care about one another. Right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. They actually like there is something to their relationship besides like mutual racism and mutual narcissistic eroticism like that. There's something else to it. They like each other. There's actually so Spencer, this is famous. I, I have to tell you, this is famous. So it was something that was just implied like very heavily in ways that were really funny like at one point they're like in venice and pietro is reading love poetry to her in a gondola and like there's just all this weird shit (laughs) it's just uh, i again i'll hand it to mark miller when he does something i think is funny i thought that was really fucking funny and i'm not a big ultimates fan but i did think that was because here's the thing like pietro and wanda always had kind of a weird vibe they just did and i'm not saying that 616 wanda and pietro are inappropriate in that way i'm just saying he was very possessive of her there's like the the way that he reacts to her in vision is fully crazy i get why you would be a longtime fan who's like how do i reimagine these characters in like a fun edgy way and go with that also in that universe it turns out wolverine cucked magneto and that they're his children and at one point he watched them fuck magneto watched no wolverine 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 watched the twins fuck he didn't know that he was their dad or me. He did know. Oh, um, this is awful. Yeah, no, that's that's what <laughs> I'm saying. Is it progressively? Stop. I thought it was funny when it started, and then it got progressively crazier. And most famously, in <laughs> Ultimates Volume Three, written by Jeff Loeb, Wanda gets killed in battle. I guess this is when she's still injured or something. Pietro's like flipping out. And uh, the Wasp is talking to Captain America and she's like, Cap, don't you get it? They love each other. And he's like, yeah, well, they're siblings. And she's like, no, they love each other. And Cap is like, what the fuck? (laughs) 
And the wasp acts like he's being an old fuddy-duddy. Jesus Christ. Oh, I forgot you're from the 40s. It's like, no, this isn't normal now. But the comic <laughs> treats it totally like it's just like, oh, Cap, don't be so closed-minded. It's like about incest? Anyway. Yeah, so uh, Ultimate Wand and Pietro win the Newlywed game. Fenris do not win the Newlywed game. Here's actually what would happen. Andreas would answer every question about Andrea correctly, but Andrea would not be able to answer any questions about Andreas. Yeah, I buy that. You know? It just wouldn't yeah. really happen. It's like how in Citizen V, she loved that Citizen V stepped in to cuck her brother. Yeah, like grab the guy. Yeah. He's more of a, an extension of herself, which is, this is not in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. I mean, the okay. one thing I will say about, about them and swordsmen and all of that that I do think is problematic in like the not great way is when you are going to redeem or try to redeem one of these characters it usually is the guy and jamie lannister is another example of that but that's more a criticism of the show version because i don't think martin's actually doing that and we'll see where that goes when those books Ezra hashem are published and you say that I'm holding out hope with Magneto's resurrection. Last question. David Welsh writes, Greetings, Connor, and welcome back to Pulitzer Prize winning Spencer Ackerman. I enjoy every episode, but yours are some of my favorites. Here's my question about the fully appalling von Strucker siblings. As an older nerd during my childhood, one of the few reliable non-comics outlets for superhero content was the Saturday morning cartoon, The Super Friends. The producers introduced point-of-view teen characters, alien twins named Zan and Jaina, don't worry about it, who needed to touch hands to activate their shape-changing abilities. I have to admit, I've had a slight weakness ever since for twins who need to high-five to get their super on, whether it's the OG Wonder Twins or the Bobiers or even these fascist flowers in the attic assholes. My question is, if like their predecessors Zan and Jaina, Andrea and Andreas had to shout out something akin to Wonder Twin Powers Activate, what should the Fenris Ooh. equivalent be? Thank you for considering this truly stupid question in what is otherwise surely a very thoughtful episode. I don't know, I would say 50-50. <laughs> I love that you felt the need to explain the Wonder Twins to me. It makes me feel dewy and young and so flush with youth, but I... I'm very familiar with Super Friends. It was in reruns all the time when I was a kid. I needed the I needed the explanation. Oh, did you? Yeah. I I, I don't know what they I didn't know that they shouted something. Oh, they, they go Wonder Twin Powers activate and they touch rings oh, or right, whatever. It's like form and of then a form thing. of right yeah. form. She she always turns into an animal and he turns into a form of water. Is my recollection? So she's like form of a gorilla and he's like form of a bucket of ice and then she throws the the gorilla throws the bucket of ice at people or whatever. Sure, because that's a way to fight. Yeah, okay. they were not well loved. Let's say. I mean, I I just think they would yell out like something extremely. I, I, yeah, I <laughs> don't. I like. I feel like it would just be like. I just think whatever it would be would be unprintable, and you would have yeah. to do like asterisks and whatnot. I was very impressed that Teeny got Strucker fuckers into X Corp. I mean, it's asterisk it's, out, it's in but the, it, yeah, it's but in it has things. to be. But you count out the word. You count out the letters. Well, even if you don't, it so clearly has to be Strucker fuckers because that's so yeah. funny. It's what we're talking about here, yeah. Yeah, well, they are Strucker fuckers. They are Strucker, they are Strucker fuckers. fuckers. It works on every level. It's like when Mystique called Moira a cunt in 10 Lives X Deaths, and you could totally <laughs> tell it's what she was saying, and it just made me bark a laugh because so it was is that, so... so is the actual answer like they hold hands and go strucker fuckers well i think they hold You've hands been strucker fuck i think they hold hands <laughs> i think they hold hands <laughs> and you just see like you, you remember in next wave how they would just oh, use God. like 
the skull and crossbones like over yeah. and over. It's like it's that. Gonna be, but with swastikas. Well, you can't really print that, but it could be like a little wolf head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't appreciate how now like we have to like inhabit the Strucker's voice. I don't want to stay here. <laughs> Let's move on. Spencer, thank you so much for being my guest. Woo! I was going to say, do you have anything else to say about Fenris? But I think we're tapped. Do you have anything else you need to say before God and all his creation? As a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> and I texted you about this and you may not remember. As I was reading my older daughter from a younger reader book about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I stumbled on a passage giving a bit of an anecdote that I thought applied not really to Fenris, because that doesn't work, no, but really but... To, to to you and I, as Yom Kippur approaches, having just done a Fenris episode. And I'd like <laughs> to just read it, it really quickly. This is about a, a really legendary Hasidic rabbi named, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation of his name, sorry, to the Tzaddik, Zusha of Hanapol, so Ukraine. Zusha of Hanapol, a 19th century Hasidic rabbi, once commented, when I am called to give a final account before the heavenly throne, I am not afraid of being asked, why were you not like Abraham? For then I will answer, because I'm not Abraham. If I am asked why I was not like Moses, I can answer, because I'm not Moses. But if I am asked, why were you not like Zusha, what will I say then? Gorgeous. And I feel, as we are called on, on Yom If Kippur, we could not be if Spencer we and Connor, yeah, we would not be us. And so us. I hope, that everyone has enjoyed this episode members of the tribe and goys alike happy yom kippur is not really appropriate but gamar hatimatova there you go gamar hatimatova to you too and i if you uh well by the time this comes out you will have already but easy fast to anybody who's fasting if you're coming to new york comic-con i'll see you there this will probably come out during new york e comic-con and you'll see spencer there because spencer is going to be at New York Comic Con also. Yes, I cannot say why. Yet, I've but... been told. <laughs> but he'll be there for some reason. I will be there for some reason. Yes, come say hi. Well, Spencer, why don't you tell the listeners how to follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Thank you so much, Connor. I never thought doing a Fenris episode that I had not asked for would be as Would be great this much fun, right? An experience as it was. I also want to say thank you not only to what you have created on Cerebro, but for the amazing community on the Discord. I'm very grateful to you for that and for everyone for participating. Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized American Produced Trump is out now in paperback. It, I'm happy to say, I'm very honored to say, is a recipient of the American Book Award. Sunday, November 9th, if you are so inclined, you will be able to see the awards show, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. I understand they'll show it on C-SPAN. You can also go to the Before Columbus Foundation's website. I am leading off an awards show, which is wild. I have to write an acceptance speech this week for that. In November, Waller versus Wildstorm by me, Evan Narcisse, and Eric Battle. The first issue of four is going to be out. I am... So, so excited for this to be in the world and I can, I hope, show and prove what I can do in comics. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Please don't let this flop. 
please, 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 if you are so inclined, <laughs> pre-order Waller versus Wildstorm. It's a four-issue series. It's going to be coming out every other month. And it's black labels, so if you're not a DC reader, like it's not a standard incontinuity story, so you can just jump right in. We're doing vibes. I am very, very grateful, especially because black label is out of continuity and is for a mature audience what I have been allowed to present to you. I cannot wait for the Cerebro audience to see my very first page turn. I think people... <laughs> of our now five political dialogues will really enjoy this. It's been an incredibly fulfilling experience. Also, I am very rarely, I'm happy to say, I'll be ramping back up because I got to promote this, this comic. I'm on Twitter at Attackerman, which is also my handle on Instagram, where I am more active and foreverwars.ghost.com is my newsletter. Sign up. I would very much appreciate if you bought a paid subscription. If you're not able to do that, just reach out and let's talk. You know, it's Cerebro, so mishpoka. <laughs> and that's it for me. Thank you so much, Connor. Thank you, as always, for joining us. I love chatting with you, and I love when we get to invite the listeners to experience us chatting together, because it's always fun, but it's extra fun when 20,000 of our closest friends will download it this week. So uh, more than more than that. That's great. Oh, wow. Sometimes I think about the scale of that, and I get a little <laughs> dizzy. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon, but I'm trying to use it less. Or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Next week's episode will feature returning guest Leah Williams on Tabitha Smith. Boom, boom. Questions are now closed for that episode and for the following two episodes. Caitlin Klein on Manifold and Gateway and Khaldun Khalil on The Shadow King, Amal Farouk. But now I am excited to announce the four episodes to follow. Episodes yes. 92 through 95 of Cerebro. Wow. First, new fan favorite Jordan Block returns to the show for a Halloween spooktacular on Melody Jacobs' Threnody. Boots with the fur, bitch. Then Nola Fow returns for a deep dive on Longshot. Journalist Owen Higgins joins All us right. to talk about Black Tom Cassidy. My boy. And upcoming Blue Beetle Graduation Day writer Josh Trujillo joins us to talk about Forge. If you have any questions about Threnody, Longshot, Black Tom Cassidy, or Forge, send those to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Please, if you are sending questions from multiple characters, send them in multiple emails. It makes things much easier for me. Thank you, as always, for your support. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you can get exclusive access to the secret files bonus episodes including the weekly claremont marathon audio of the live show at flamecon this year and the upcoming worrying about it series <laughs> in which i will dig into some of the more confusing or thorny plot lines in x-men history i love doing this show i can't believe episode 100 is coming i have so much exciting stuff in store for the rest of the year and Next year, season four is going to be wild. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, bye. See you on a Gabby Haller episode. X-Men, X-Men.
In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world.